All right, guys, I believe that we are finally live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov, with the smoke behind me. This is the smoke that is symbolizing the energy that is going off of me right now because I am excited about the future. Never mind all these horrible things that are going on in the world. That is besides the point because what we're doing on the stream is we are bringing everybody together to figure out what the hell we're going to do. And we are, you know, I am absolutely for nonviolence and all that stuff within this uh within this world that we have here we are able to engage with different people regardless of our point of view and we are going to be talking about a lot of interesting things today we're going to be talking about infrastructure we are going to be talking about both the infrastructure of the outside world trains planes automobiles all that good stuff and we're going to be talking about the infrastructure of the internet with these new social networks that are cropping up right now video hosting just all these things they're going to be able to people not to be part of the machine not to be part of the beast so mm. this is what we're going to be talking about today and my friend giovanni penicietti made it in exactly the right time welcome geo but what are we talking also, about today we are going to be talking about Brilliant. infrastructure but let me also let me also announce some of the uh people who are joining us we got alex forrest he is back with us alex forrest hashtag train twitter and we got jeremy kaufman founder of odyssey slash library an amazing new video service that i recently started using and we got jessica deloche she is just coming in right now here she is and everybody don't forget subscribe to break the rules right now i mean it this this is enough 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 just uh you know being a wallflower here you got to start contributing you got to start sending super chats you got to start becoming a patron of break the rules and this is what we're about we're bringing people together here we have jessica deloach back with us jessica thank you so much for coming in that is a great pleasure so we are gonna we're gonna have a lot of fun today so let's get this started just quick intros for those who don't know let's start with alex just say real briefly i mean i think everybody knows here who you are but just in case they don't all right. Um, I'm Alex. I uh, run the account on Twitter, 380KMH, um, which posts about nice trains and a variety of topics. Um, glad to be here again. Excellent. And uh, Jeremy, like I said before, you're the founder of, of uh, Library Odyssey. Is there anything else you would like to add before we start? Uh, well, that you also need to make sure that you're going over to Odyssey and, and subbing to break the rules over there. Uh, yes. you know, if, if we want to fix some of the problems of the world right now, you know, we got to take it upon ourselves and, and take a little initiative. Absolutely. I'm going to be posting the link in the chat. And finally, Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, I work in politics, political communications and strategy. The last time I was on the show was my first time on the show, and we had a really great conversation. And I'm actually really looking forward to everything I'm going to learn uh, just from listening to you guys today and anticipate some very good questions. And I don't know. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be great. Thank you for coming back. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get this started with Alex and uh, talking about the physical infrastructure. I think right now the impression that a lot of people, a lot of countries have of America is that it was this once great giant that is now just this burger, like the Spurdo burger memes oh, that we God. see all over the place. And oh. that, uh, you know, we were once makers. We were once, you know, laying down mm. the railroads, you know, creating all these systems of travel. And it freed people up and it also made people appreciate this giant that we have, uh, you know, that, that we have here. And this is a country that, uh, uh, 
you know, it's a country that I think blesses a lot of people who who partake in it. It constantly gives bounties if people are ready to receive them. But right now, people have this opposite view for whatever reasons. I mean, that could be a good way of starting it up because I think it also links up to a lot of problems people are noticing today. You know, the people who are protesting with the election and all these uh, all these crazy things that are going on right now. I think a lot of it does come down to, you know, they don't want America to be a second or a third rate power like they want it to be you know, something to be proud of, something that does create and has this Promethean fire. So to start mm -hmm. off, where do you think things started going wrong as far as the infrastructure goes, at least, as far as all these ways of uh, getting around so it's not as people saw it before? Yeah, um, I think it actually goes back pretty far. Um, I'm not sure exactly where to draw a precise starting point, but for me, the time that I start paying real close attention to uh, things going sideways is around the 1870s. Um, this was just after, you know, within a decade of completing the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and it was kind of around this point that uh, the railways really began, you know, competing uh, it, viciously, I guess, is the only way to put it, um, and monopolizing and, you know, building up uh, isolated networks. Um, essentially what they were doing was uh, even at this very early stage, even sort of, this is before the heyday of American railways, which happened, you know, about 50 years later, um, in terms of total build out. Um, but even this early, uh, they were sorry, they were taking decisions that um, didn't really benefit their passengers, uh, for the sake of, you know, trying to improve their own revenues. Um, you know, is it it kind of like a is amazing how much they were able to build. Um, but because they were building a lot of it just to sort of cash out quickly, um, a lot of it was not really viable um, and didn't survive very long as soon as there is serious competition. Um, and this comes down to kind of the difference between, you know, a railway network as lines on a map and a railway network as trains specifically that you can catch. Um, so on a lot of these lines, you know, you'll look at a map of American railways from the time and it looks very extensive, but most of them will be running mostly or exclusively freight trains, you know, not for passengers to get around. Um, the passenger trains that you do get have very little coordination between rival networks. So it can take you, you know, all day to switch trains in a major city um, if you're going against the grain. Um, and especially interesting to me is how they applied fares for passengers and for freight, actually, um, where the, uh, the larger companies would um, sell rates between major hubs at extremely steep losses um, just to try and corner as much of the market as they could. And then for any points on their networks that were exclusively served by their, you know, by themselves, uh, they would charge extortionate rates, um, you know, discouraging people from even using the system unless they absolutely had to. Um, this provoked a lot of resentment. Um, and it's even funny, if you read books from the time, there's a book, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, um, but discussing the uh, the railroad problem in America in the 1870s. And you look at the rhetoric uh, from the people who are complaining about the railroads, they seem really, really convinced that the problem here is that uh, the market hasn't been free enough, um, which I thought was, you know, a little, a little funny given how the railways got into that position in the first place um, by having, you know, minimal oversight and lots of leeway from the government. Um, but, you know, 
the the refrain from the people who are upset by you know the havoc this caused uh, was just you know we we got to make it even freer. Um, so it seems like a very characteristic line of thought, which has been with us for a long time. Now, the ANCAPs would respond to that and say that they have never been free since the uh, progressive era, that all of these, you know, uh, giant uh, robber barons teamed up with the government, and that's resulted in a lot of these problems. What would you say to that? I think that's a, that seems like a pretty accurate description to me. Um, but, you know, it just... It's a good description of what happened then, but it doesn't really go into really how they arrived at that point in the first place, you know? So it's talking about what happened after after the 1870s, going into the Gilded Age, rather than how did you get to the 1870s. And as far as what other countries are doing right now, countries that are being looked at by, uh, you know, a train aficionados and people who see a lot of potential in what they do as, you know, the uh, the envy of uh, the world and the enemy of the U.S. Like, I don't know, Japan would be an example. I'm not sure which other countries you would put in there. Maybe China, although they have other problems as far as the amount of sheer amount of people that they pack into those trains during New Year's. People have to wear diapers when they go, as far as I know, people have to wear diapers when they're traveling from one place to another because there's not going to be any way at all that they're going to access the bathroom on that train with how packed it is. So, you know, they have problems there. But as far as the infrastructure goes of countries like that, what do you see as the big difference in what they were able to achieve versus what the United States was able to? Well, for someone like China, I would only say that the big difference is just that they did it, you know, 100, 150 years later. You know, if we were building, if we were building out a railway network in America for almost the first time as like a cohesive country, um, that you know, at this time in the in the early twenty first century, we'd probably end up building something like that, like what China's building now. Um, America went through this phase, obviously, in the eighteen hundreds instead. And during the twentieth century, we just kind of thought we really wouldn't need any of this anymore, and just sort of let it fall by the wayside. Um, mm. And I think nowadays more people are switched on to the idea that that was a bad call, um, and that we could have done the the problem of trying to fix up American railways now could be a much simpler problem if we hadn't been so convinced that we would never need them again, you know, and, and for a long time too, for like decades. I want to get to Jessica in a moment, but first I want to quickly ask you regarding the uh, militarized use of the highway system that was developed after World War II. Do you see that also contributing to, you know, a lot of the uh, decline over time that may have been unintentional? Or do you see the highway system that we have right now as actually a, a shining example of American ingenuity? Um, more, more the latter than the former, I guess. Um, I don't think that the military aspects of the interstate highway system particularly contributed to the decline of railways. Um, I think, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think a lot about, you know, bad management decisions on the part of the railways, um, at the time, even though I can sort of sympathize with where they were coming from, given their own past experience. Um, and, you know, while, while I have certain objections to, uh, the implementation of the interstate highway, uh, system, um, especially with, uh, highways in the middle of, you know, going right through urbanized areas, um, and, you know, breaking them up, cutting them apart, uh, on the whole, I think, yeah, it is an example of, you know, America's sort of constructive brilliance that we're still showing, you know, in the fifties you know, and beyond. So now let's get to Jessica. 
So people in the chat are already talking about uh, you being on Pete Buttigieg's campaign early on. And I just want to say, Jessica, thank you so much for coming in today, because I know that when it comes to certain views that may differ you know, with you and some of the other people here, this is exactly what we need for BTR. We need to bring in people who don't think you know, in, in the same way. So I really hope that we can get a lot of different views about the things that are going on today. But starting with, I don't know if you've been in communication with Pete, he has been, from what I understand, uh, uh, given the uh, Secretary of Transportation job, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. And what kind of things is he going to be focused on when it comes to uh, improving our infrastructure and improving uh, transportation and all that? Well, so he does have the unique perspective that a mayor would have when it comes to infrastructure. You know, like if you have that mayoral vision, which, you know, people have been dismissive of being a mayor of a small town and what that could possibly mean and what kind of impact that could have um, when you have a position that's as large as the one he has. But you also have to keep in mind that, yes, there's perspective, but you also have to have intelligence for any sort of job you have. And you have a very large team of people that are working to execute on the goals that you set. Obviously, he's not making any of these decisions on his own. He's working within the Biden administration to execute on what President-elect Biden's big plans are for infrastructure. So this isn't the Pete Buttigieg show. This is the Biden show. And he is the person who's been charged with executing on those ideas. You know, where he has some, uh, some freedom is to be able to get creative with how he solves the problems that are set before him. I mean, I don't think that uh, there's any question about how how rough our infrastructure just all across the country is and just it, it, things are in poor shape. And there are lots of questions about who's supposed to pay for what, because a lot of people, a lot of small towns and counties, they don't want to foot the bill for large projects because they either don't have the money or they know that in order to get the revenue, the revenues to fund those projects are ultimately going to have to raise taxes or find some some ways of getting creative to bring that money in. You know, it, uh, not for nothing, but a lot of people don't like to have their taxes raised to pay for things that they use every day. Um, that's super unfortunate. But you know what? If you're driving a car on the road, well, those roads are part of your responsibility, too. A lot of this also comes down to people not believing that when their taxes are raised, that those revenues go to where they say they're going to, to go. Um, but again, it's not Pete Buttigieg who would be raising your taxes. These are state and local and federal issues. So um, you'll hear a lot of talk about, you know, another WPA and just how you have uh, different ways of using infrastructure as a means of re-engaging people or re-employing people because we have a large number of people who currently don't have jobs and they have lots and lots of great skills that aren't being put to use. So what can we be doing in the meantime to get people back to work so that they're, you know, earning a paycheck and able to support themselves and their families? That's uh, something that I think is probably in the back of Pete's mind. You know, I'm, I'm not his spokesperson, but I do know him. And we've had conversations before about the way he views the country and the challenges that it faces and different ways that he could play a leadership role. Um, and it just so happens to be that he's now this particular uh, leader of this one part of our government. And so, um, you know, I do think that there's been a very robust conversation about train travel in this country, but not one that's robust enough. So, you know, if living through this pandemic has taught us anything, it is how hard it is to get out of your house when you don't even have access to the internet, right? So if you don't have access to the internet, you don't have transportation, you're pretty much stuck, you're going nowhere. 
So if you don't have the physical transfer or the physical infrastructure in place, well, what about the infrastructure you can't see that does mobilize people? Remote work has become so much a part of what's been keeping people's bills paid right now. It's been what's keeping people employed and us being able to pivot and find ways of keeping people uh, you know, busy during the day and, and you know, away from losing their jobs. Thank God we've had the infrastructure that we have, but even that infrastructure isn't good enough. Um, for those of you who don't know, I made mention on, our, on the lasses I had here, I'm a native Arkansan, you can probably hear it in my voice. And when I was in graduate school, one of the things that I had to study was the lack of access to the internet in my home state. And it was pretty significant. Now that we've been living through a pandemic, that particular state has been having to navigate the complexities of what you do when you have students that don't have access to the internet, but they're still required to go to school. They're still required to learn. And this is a, this is a problem in rural, rural communities all across the country. Um, that's an infrastructure issue that you know, Pete and, and his team would have to face. So, you know, right now we don't know a lot about what Vice President-elect Biden's plans are for infrastructure, but I know that in time, all of those things will be fleshed out and it would be Pete's job to deliver on that. So um, how, kind of what direction do you wanna go with, with this conversation? Because I'll answer any questions you guys have to the best of my ability. So one thing that I was wondering about, and I was having a conversation earlier with Jake, a.k.a. Childerberg, who should be coming in a little bit later today, but we were basically talking about how much have a lot of these problems that people are talking about they're encountering in the decline of transportation, infrastructure, all these things, how much is that the result of just going with the flow of advanced technology where during the industrial revolution we had people who suffered we had people who you know even died because things were changing really quickly and how much of it are actually things that if people start paying attention to them they would be things that were done by people that are both reversible that are both something that people can, you know, even though I say, you know, let's not start pointing fingers. I am in favor of pointing fingers as far as certain things that have been passed, certain deals that may have been made, which resulted in this, where it's not just a going with the flow, natural type of, you know, what are we going to do? Technology changes and we have to adapt with it, adapt with it. But mm -hmm. it is actually a more of a, you know what, it didn't have to be this way if this decision wasn't done way more people would have been living prosperously by now and we would have had the money for the infrastructure and all these things. So uh, before we get back to Jessica, I know, um, Gio, this is something that's been pretty prevalent in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of the circles of the extremely online community as far as people lamenting the problems that America faces together with the idea that I think a lot of uh, Trump supporters have also had about America being swindled over. America being swindled over by these multinational corporations that are to mm -hmm. extract our wealth and give it to China and all that. But again, these are just so many sound bites that get passed through our ears. We either accept them, we either reject them. And what I want to try to do here is to figure out what are things that we can actually grab onto that are definitely legit. So, mm -hmm. Gio, uh, t take it away if you'd like. Well, wait, what's your question, love? About ah. Yeah, well, the my question about, yeah, go on. No, well, go ahead, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, well, it was basically about what is the consensus of the frustrations that people are feeling when it comes to thinking that Americans have been, America has been swindled over. 
I think the the problem is that the usual setup that we've talked about in the show before, the usual setup of it being, you know, well, the corporations have too much power and this is an alien force and, um, you know, we need more, less government, more government. It's, it's more of the whole structure of the sort of North American consensus, you could call it itself, is structured in such a way as to be sort of vulnerable to these problems of private influence. And it's not a matter of just like, you know, regulation this or liberty that or whatever. It's It goes beyond that. It's more of the fact that we live in a time where uh, corporations aren't just, and it, maybe, I know, maybe we're just getting ahead of ourselves, but when it comes to corporate influence, it's not just like them uh, exerting like, okay, what's the right influence? It's more of the very metrics of life itself in modernity is subsumed under a sort of network of corporate corporatist influences from the highways to the digital highways to the food supply. It seems that there's no easy answer around it. There's, there's powers beyond simple government force uh, coming in. It's more of the, the fact that the, the way uh, the structure itself and whether you want to call it you know, late capitalism, neoliberalism, so forth. The way it's structured itself is sort of uh, defeatist in the sense of there's only uh, certain powers can get bigger and and uh, more resources are under the influence of those uh, certain powers and elements in society. And it's, uh, what am I going, <laughs> I'm just rambling right now. It seems that there's almost an impossibility without a total reset, not like a great reset, like, great. like a great reset, but it's, it's more of a, unless there's something dramatic, it seems that there really is no way around it. So for example, uh, Alex, you know, this, why isn't it that America can just, I don't know, like Bernie Sanders claps his hands and like, there's a mag lab, there's a, you know, nationwide rail system uh, that like they have in Europe the problem is that there's a lot of structural issues with the American uh, infrastructure and the way that it's decentralized to be held in the hands of private influences to begin with. And so similarly in the internet, there's certain protocols and channels that are slowly being centralized in the hands, not of government per se, but of these huge monolithic corporations that have uh, transnational resources and influence and it's very difficult to sort of envision a way out of it without changing the whole notion of the quote-unquote american project to begin with which is you know your standard like you know liberal capitalist uh american dream sort of ideology or lack therefore so it's there we can debate about you know where is the proper you know what's the proper level of government regulation and so forth but that's not getting at the issue i guess you could say i would love for alex to respond to that and then go to jeremy and then jessica all right um one thing that comes immediately to mind when i'm hearing you talk about this is uh sort of a what i think is like a misperception of what people see when they look at infrastructure um you know it's easy to look at that and think of it as you know since it's a monumental scale construction 
Um, you think of it like a monument, you know, you, you build it once and it's for the ages. Um, but, and, and this is true, you know, for, for countries that do infrastructure well or do infrastructure badly, um, what you really have is kind of like a machine or a mechanism that produces infrastructure as an output, you know? And so if we're, if we're having trouble with the infrastructure that we have, um, it's because the mechanism we have in place is, you know, designed to produce this kind of infrastructure. Um, it doesn't really, uh, it's, it's not something you can easily change, um, you know, um, but to, to get different infrastructure priorities and different infrastructure outputs, you would need to work on that, on that mechanism, you know, in terms of, in terms of how, uh, you know, funding and contracts for infrastructure construction are distributed. So let's go to uh, Jeremy. As far as the infrastructure of the internet goes, you know a lot more about this than I think many people. You have your own company library. I mean, you're not the only one who runs it, but basically this is this is your baby. This is something that you've created as a competitor to what's set up right now. And the question is, how would it be able to fare against the servers, against all of these things that have gone through the ground in order to enable the uh, connections people have right now. I don't even know what servers you guys are using, but the point is that you may still be dependent on a lot of this stuff. So how are you going to go about making library as independent as possible? And what's been your journey so far with trying to figure all this stuff out? Yeah, totally. So uh, <clears throat> I think um, the library network is already uh, sort of the most decentralized way to uh, access digital content, uh, at least that's usable. The uh, we do have websites and so on that are sort of on more traditional infrastructure. They're potentially vulnerable to disruption, um, uh, but you know not really. Uh, and uh, the I think that the future uh, in this direction uh, like is is pretty clear. Uh, you know we've seen uh, hundreds of thousands. I think it may be a million extra people uh, coming on uh, just over the last couple of days. Uh, so the, the hunger for alternatives here is pretty strong. And I mean, this is how change happens. So I guess to make, I mean, maybe this is worth talking about because it kind of ties, ties things together. Um, it, Cause you'll see, you'll see uh, conservatives right now uh, calling for regulation of the, um, of the big tech companies uh, because they feel that they're, they're, they're being um, treated unfairly. And, and these are people who generally would, would make, you know, pro uh, free market arguments. Um, and I think there are some arguments that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of market. You know, do we have free markets in the United States? Uh, there are ways in which the government is very involved in the regulation and control of the Internet and financial rails and so on. But something that I think is underappreciated is the time in which it takes things to change. So sometimes we have these messy situations, whether they're uh, trains uh, or uh, or or the or the distribution of ourselves uh, between um, uh, service providers. It's the same kind of thing, actually. Right. In the sense that. Uh, I want to be a part of the larger network, and now the large network is mistreating me. It takes a long time for these shifts to happen. Even, even once people are cognizant of the fact that these services are mistreating them, it takes a long time for people to actually change their habits and change their behavior and change, change the services that they're using. And so, like, even if things happen really fast, like, it's go it takes years. And uh, so, you know, when we, I, I do think that sometimes when we step in to fix these things, 
uh, through government, we may improve the situation in the short term from a consequentialist perspective. We may make a problem better, but we then create a sort of uh, stagnancy uh, that prevents uh, advancing or the discovery of potentially uh, uh, better solutions uh, because it's very difficult once rules are in place uh, to get them changed. That's a good point. And I want to diverge a little bit away since we started talking about the internet. I would be amiss if we did not talk about the elephant in the room here, which is uh, Trump's recent uh, Twitter ban. So as far as whether it has repercussions, whether it's justified, unjustified, it's a controversial subject, but it is something that I would be very interested in uh, in discussing as well, because I think it does relate to this conversation about where exactly should a lot of these big tech firms stand when it comes to making such, such decisions and what ramifications does it have throughout the entire world as well. So let's get started with Jessica. What do you think? Oh, you got to unmute yourself. There we go. I don't even know how I muted myself, but okay, here we go. So really quick, I just wanted to throw out um, a couple of things just for you guys to chew on. You know, we've had a bit of a, a broader, more philosophical conversation about infrastructure, whether it be what you can or cannot see. And I just want to throw out that um, oftentimes when you want to see developments in infrastructure, especially like you talk about train travel, you know, there was a period in time where it was, we've acquired one technology, now what's the next? And we've had this, this American mentality of what's next over and over and over. And we stop investing in resources that were, or in technologies that had we continued building on them and expanding them, we would benefit from those things. And it's very heartbreaking that we drop the ball there. But also I, I just wanted to highlight before I answer your question and pivot into this other web, um, you know, whenever you see technology or the, the development or the build out of technologies being stifled, usually behind that are there conversations with people with money, corporations that want contracts. There are so many different uh, people at the table who get in the way and they stymie progress, but they will also argue that if you use my resources, if you take my money, I can guarantee a certain result. Broadband access is a great example of this. Make no mistake about it, AT&T and other companies are constantly angling for those state contracts because they want to be the people behind those build outs. So um, never, ever forget that there are people who have a seat at the table that are stymieing these conversations because they want ownership of the prosperity that would come as these technologies, as this infrastructure is enhanced. Um, I can step away from that. I just want to throw that out there because that's always going to be a, a part of the conversation. Make no mistake about it. Train travel is not built out because you have a robust automobile industry. You have a trucking industry that would suffer as a result of that. And even airlines could suffer as a result of that. So they're a bit outnumbered when it comes to um, building out train travel. So um, to answer your question about Trump. So, um, okay, I know that this will be controversial. And I've tried my best to break this down into pieces that are that are palatable because I believe what has happened with him, with kicking him off of Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, that we have reached an inevitable outcome that somebody, some noteworthy somebody was at some point always going to be kicked off, thus starting this conversation about how much power 
these large entities have? And is it right for them to have so much power while they also have government protections? I did not like the way Donald Trump behaved online. I also am smart enough to know that just because he did not directly say things does not mean he wasn't engaging in dog whistles and innuendo and other ways of other phrasings that would uh, encourage people to act a certain way. I'm also aware that a person can say something, but what you choose to do with your time and your resources that's on you. I understand all of it. But I also understand that if you're not going to hold the president of the United States to a higher standard than you hold everyone else, then what are we even doing here? Um, it should have, in my opinion, it should have never even gotten to this place where he had to be kicked off of any of these platforms. There were plenty of other more powerful entities that could have dealt with him at any point during his presidency or even before. And not for nothing, he was elected by the American people. It is not like he ever misrepresented himself. Um, he made it pretty clear how he was going to behave and what we have gotten is what he promised. So, now we have this conversation about are these tech companies too big? Should he have been kicked off? Is it going to make a difference? At this point, I, I, I don't mind having that conversation, but I am deeply concerned about how these decisions will now, without question, drive people who think a certain way further underground. I know that people will say, well, the whole point is to remove his ability to use these powerful tools right now. Okay, and I get it. It's not like someone's gonna show up tomorrow and build the next Twitter. Um, there is no competition among these social media networks that's real and meaningful, but it is wrong to say that it will never happen. I would say never say never because people are getting smarter. And also too, uh, you, you guys may have noticed there was a, a man who passed away today named Sheldon Adelson, who was one of the greatest funder or greatest funders of the uh, conservative right, the more far right. And at one point, he actually used to give to both major parties. And then after the Citizens United decision, he then started giving exclusively to conservatives. Um, it is not like people can't find the money to make things happen. But now we have a situation where an American president has been booted off of one of the most significant, most relevant social media platforms. And that decision will have consequences, whether you agree with it or not. Um, and by the way, I, I can't um, read the chat boxes while I'm talking. And I'm sure you guys have. I, I would I would ignore the chat boxes, honestly. Yeah. If, the, if a okay. good question comes in, I will ask. Uh, but also, okay. I just want you to know that. Uh, I want you to know in the chat right now that I am so happy that Jessica is here with us and I want you to give her the utmost respect because this is one of the most important things that can be done here to actually talk with someone who would d disagree with the uh, assumptions that other people would have because this is the only way that we can learn from each other again. So Jessica, I really appreciate you saying that. And one thing that I wanted to uh, quickly mention is that if we're talking about, let's say, um, one one good comment that was made over here was uh, talking about how there is there is an assumption that a lot of people have today. I think a lot of Trump supporters also have the assumption they see a lot of the big tech firms as being a wing of the Democratic Party, basically, where the connections are so close 
that it might as well be the same entity, and that is also something that is concerning about them. So that comment was made. I don't want to leave that alone just because I think this is something that's going to be resonating not just from this conversation right now, but people are going to keep bringing it up, and I think it's important to address like what exactly is a solution to something like that. Because you mentioned, well, 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 yeah. Well, think, well, think about this because I think, um, and I, I, I would, uh, I, I would disagree with a decent amount of what Jessica uh, said. Uh, although we we share we are agreed that uh, it is difficult for for the, uh, the the government to produce good regulations, uh, the, the but I want to I want to just ask a question. I'm not going to just just let's think about this because Jessica was absolutely right that the president could um, has the ability to to go other places to continue to communicate. I, it is not Twitter that's like oh Trump can't talk to anyone right like Trump could be saying hey I'm on Gab. Uh, uh, I'm on, I'm on these other places. I'm on a random domain name. Come and watch me. Right. Yeah. Like Trump has the ability to do this. And we all know that he has the ability to do this. So I think that means that we should rethink why it's being done. Um, I would suggest it's not to actually stop Trump from talking, but to show to a certain class of people. And I'd like to say, I'm not a member, I'm an observer. I'm not a member of this class. But what I see when I'm trying to observe this neutrally is that is that what's actually going on is you're trying to send a signal that this, these group, this group of people is untouchable. They're undesirables. And they won't be allowed to use any of the services that other people are allowed to use. And yeah. that's what I think is the underlying social dynamic of what's happening. I think it is dangerous because it does further radicalize this group of people. Uh, and, and I think that, and, but I think that that's the actual social dynamic of what's going on and why it happens. It's a model of exclusion. That's what going forward. That's what's going to happen. It's not um, censorship. It's the fact that Trump was banned like Alex Jones, like Molly meme, like others all at the same time by every platform, by every, every Silicon Valley giant. It's the model of exclusion that is creating an abandonment of a certain class of people deemed irredeemable, or against the terms of service. Now imagine, which has happened to Trump's campaign and it's happened to his funding sites. Now payment processors and banks and uh, critical infrastructure is denied to people because the prevailing ethos is that, well, these are private companies and there's nothing we can do because of the American dream and capitalism and so forth. That's the biggest problem. Uh, that's the, and what are we going to, you know, what can you really do about it? That's, you know, when you have, Again, this is what I'm saying. It's not about just the censorship narrative and, you know, very ineffective, nonsensical gestures, such as, I don't know, Ted Cruz bringing up Jack Dorsey on Capitol Hill and saying, well, well did you censor conservatives? And Jack Dorsey goes, no, he doesn't. I don't. And now here's the thing. Controversial take. Jack Dorsey is a bit more tolerant than other than certainly Mark Zuckerberg when it comes to dissident opinions. But I think, you know, he was very much uh, his hands were tied. But that's the problem is that it's setting a precedent. Who tied, like when, who tied, wait, who tied, who tied Jack's hands? Where was his the own administration? His own people probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Exactly. I, buy, I, I buy that, that it's like literally his employees. That, because like, that, that no, but that's the narrative that's being crafted uh, that, that these employees in this union that it's like, you know, the actual, the, the girl bosses that work for Twitter, they're the ones that are quote unquote saving democracy. And now you have almost like a worship of corporate power from people who for years, I truly believe that the last, the WTO protest in 1999, that was like the last sort of uh, anti-globalization movement on the left uh, from then on onwards, especially, you know, intensifying during the Obama years, you have the rise of uh, 
woke capitalism and so forth. But another point of contention, I would say, is that Sheldon Adelson and these funding networks. I, I don't think he was really funding the far right. I disagree with Jessica. I think that he was funding neocons and Ben Shapiro types. Uh, he certainly wasn't giving us and my friends paychecks. Uh, I don't know. So he, he wasn't, uh, I think Sheldon Adelson, their funding networks of like, here's, you know, as someone who identifies with the more esoteric quadrants of the online, right. I feel that these funding networks are just designed for, uh, corporatists within the Republican Party, the GOP, and they really don't care. And in fact, Trump was a liability to them. And, and the Trump, the Mogatists, uh, the the Mogats, uh, whatever you want to call them, they were uh, such a liability to their funding networks. And that's why uh, people like Mitch McConnell now is uh, throwing the whole, uh, you know, his former affiliations under the bus. So I, I think that's the problem is that the people, if you just look at it as a funding problem, the problem is that the people that are getting funding are incredibly ineffective and are just mouthpieces for certain interests, whether it be for corporations or certain countries. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into the country part, obviously, but um, you know what I mean? That's the problem is in, when it comes to the rival, the, the rivals in the networks that can possibly challenge the, the biggest social media companies. And I include Google and YouTube, of course, in this as well. The problem is that the infrastructure of, and, and maybe Mr. Kaufman, you could fill us in on this. The problem is that the, the way that the internet is being corralled outside of that, you know, within what we now, you know, web 3.0 instead of 2.2.0. Yeah, yeah, we're web, we're web three. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think, look, if we're talking about like the concerted effort of a nation state, that's the equivalent of like the United States or China. Right. Yeah, those nations are very powerful. So in terms of what's resilient to that, like I'm not convinced that Bitcoin is resilient to that. If the, you know, mm, the controversial take, right? yeah. yeah. So, so uh, uh, we're always talking about well, what's our threat model um, in terms of, in terms of like the network continuing to work. I think it is very hard um, as you know, remember we're on the internet we have encryption so like you can build all kinds of services you just have packets going from one ip address to another and you right. don't really know what's in them so it's it's i think it's very hard to ever take away the ability to communicate online i think it would be very hard to shut down bitcoin or library or other um you know but a that's, lot of other public blockchain type systems um, but that's the one interesting point is that we're seeing almost like soon a re-emergence of web 1.1 uh a million islands on a vast ocean yeah where well, irc they, well, they well, call well, it dark forest well, what we're actually seeing is yeah. the build like the, so I'll, I'll i and by the way I, unfortunately i'm gonna have to well maybe i can talk for like five more minutes i have to go very soon the, the, the fundamental thing, is, it's actually not about rebuilding the internet. There's actually a deeper level uh, thing that's being rebuilt. It's we're rebuilding the, um, the financial uh, system. The financial system is the central choke point of all freedom and liberty in the United States and in mm -hmm. most countries mm -hmm. across the world. You have, you have Visa and MasterCard as the only two payment networks. Um, uh, the the, <laughs> that's the name of the operation, Operation Choke Point. Uh, the United States government spending years shutting down all kinds of businesses through the credit card companies. Um, Parler losing credit card access will be a bigger deal to them than it will be losing AWS over time. And Bitcoin, if you look at what Bitcoin is doing fundamentally, Bitcoin and public blockchains are genuinely novel and they are adding value even absent of what could be built without that innovation. But 
A lot of what they're doing is things that businesses would be happy to provide if it was legal for them to do so. A bank would be happy to say, well, we provide anonymous cash bank accounts. And when you give us a password, we move the money from account A to account B, no questions asked. That is not a legal service, right? So, uh, and, and this is the fundamental, right? So we, we're now building up everything from blockchain financial and uh, essentially internet-based services to return to a world in which we're you know, not controlled. Um, so those are my, that's my, that's my thoughts on, on what's actually going yeah. on. But I think the payment stuff is one, uh, payment, uh, other stuff, the computer fraud, anti-abuse act, uh, uh, anti-money laundering, know your customer, all kinds of things are huge inhibitors of, of robust competition in this space in terms of, you know, what the kinds of services that can be built and what can be provided. I've got a question. So, okay. The one through line, okay. Through everything that's being said right now, it sounds like there is a lack of clarity on or a lack of agreeance for just the terms of service that any of these companies have that they can create to either hide behind and force however you want to look at it. Do companies have a right to have terms of service that they then get to execute on if they're violated? Like, oh, sure. like what are their rights? Because at some point, if you own a company, you are going to want to have a say and uh, who uses it, how they use it, especially if how they use it reflects on your brand. If you're taking mm. shit from the public, whenever you've got people saying, okay, um, this company contributes this money to this person, don't use this company. I mean, we see it happening all the time. And just like, like when people get mad at Fox News, they go after their advertisers. Yeah. It's the same concept. Mm. So like, how do you square it guys? Because at some point companies also are going to say, I have a right to protect my brand. Sure. They, well, oh, they, legally they, speaking, just real quick, legally yeah. speaking, are yeah. they platforms or publishers? And has that already been established? They're, pla they're platforms, they're platforms. I promise, I spent a lot of money on this. I yeah. promise, I promise. This is, this is, what, this is what a court would actually find. The, the, the section 230 stuff, is like if people say repeal section 230 and they want new regulations maybe but like the idea that if you repeal 230 they're going to be publishers i think it's i think there's a lot incorrect repealing 230 would hurt my company if you just literally repealed it it would hurt my company it would not help mm -hmm. um but uh, I, my answer is i think of course they have the right to do this i i don't want to use services where they're doing it i don't right. want to right i so and my goal is i think that I don't think we should think of these things like the square in which we make posts and other people can read them. I don't think we should think of that as like, like my goal is to turn that into email. Well, except for more for like video type sharing. Like if, if email is used to do something bad, are people like mad at email? Right? right. Like, you know, so, so like we can get mad at maybe the people who are helping them or aiding them in certain ways. But like the idea of like, we're talking about writing stuff and sharing videos. Like this is how we communicate, especially in uh, the COVID era when you're, we're in many times, like literally not allowed to travel. Sure. Like I do, I think, I think not legally speaking, not whether they have the right, I'm saying like socially speaking, I disagree with it, uh, you know, to be, uh, you know, deplatforming almost anyone. Well, real quick, we have a super chat, and I'm going to read the other super chats later, but this one is for what we're just talking about right now from the great Super Iron Bob, five U.S. dollars. So Super Iron Bob says, Section 230 as it stands disallows civil recourse for tech TOS disputes. The public needs the right to the court. Uh, re if, you want a, if you want a publicly available uh, 
digestible explanation of Section 230 that is correct, read Preston Burns' work. So you could just Google Preston Burn 230 and probably uh, find it. Uh, I endorse that analysis. And I, um, I, I actually have to go. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, thanks so no much problem. for having Jeremy, me. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Now, one thing that I wanted to get into right now, and everybody subscribe right now, subscribe for Jeremy, and also be sure to follow us on Odyssey. I'm going to link it once again, but we did start our own Odyssey site, and we're going to be uploading this video to Odyssey as well. So what I wanted to focus on right now is let's go to Parler for a second. Parler was recently shut down by AWS, all that stuff. I do not know exactly what it is that people were writing there. People were talking about there being death threats that were issued. If we're yeah. talking about, let's say, the old BBS forums that a lot of people used to use back in the day if there were certain bad things there there would be moderators in this tiny Jannies. island community jannies exactly in this <laughs> tiny island community that would be able to take care of it but now since we have a much wider social media audience the question is like what is the responsibility of moderation for something that is like you know that whole thing about free speech where you know free speech is not free speech if there's like a shouting fire in the movie theater or if it is inciting violence against somebody and this would also so like go back to what uh, Jessica was talking about with Trump and his tweets and whether there is any correlation with that. But before we get into that, I want to just focus on this idea that you would have a new upcoming network that would be, you know, say, oh, it's a private company. Just build your own. OK, fine. Let's say you build your own and it is a social media network and then things like that start happening. You start getting trolls that start actually calling for violence. And then what are you able to do to ensure that you are able to? Uh, no one says parlor is boomer shit. I agree with you, but hold on. We're not we're not going to get into that part of it Parler right is fed posting for boomers. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So with this fed posting, what exactly do we do about that? Because it's not like a small forum. It is like this wide landscape. And how exactly no, but the can we square that? The assumption that? is that discourse always inevitably translate and this is the problem with the radicalization narrative that these bread tubers like to yammer on about without knowing anything uh they the problem is that your assumption is that thought always automatically translates to action whereas there was always an assumption on the early internet days when there was a massive threshold to communicativity between people back in the day they had to go on forums they didn't know what they were doing there was usually lurkers you had to lurk for a period of time there used to be a whole gamut of impersonal metrics that allowed certain people to be active and get prominent on the internet as opposed to nowadays whereas smartphone technology allowed normies to go on yeah <laughs> i sound so stupid like you know they allowed normies to go on the internet so the problem is that you're assuming right off the bat that thought automatically translates to action or discourse automatically translates to action. Whereas there was an assumption back in the day that, you know, again, like what used to be like the first thing on 4chan B, what was like the first thing that everyone saw? These are creative works of fiction. Don't assume that anything here is real. Like that was the assumption that the internet was, um, more of a, an aesthetic and artistic endeavor rather than, uh, all of the other things that came later, such as political activism, slacktivism, such as organizations, uh, corporate advertising schemes, so forth. The problem is that when you have an environment where the vast majority of people are corralled on a few network sites that are run by these corporations, and you have people who don't have a, a sort of a recognition or an ability to navigate the internet the way that, you know, the original like OG Anons used to, uh, when you have an expectation that the internet 
colonizes real life and real life colonizes the internet the you know hyper reality now you have a problem where you can start talking about radicalization narratives and so forth but that's the problem it seems that the radicalization narrative itself is a very convenient discursive tool for further clamping down on certain demographics mm -hmm. of people that have become uh, abandoned uh sort of outside but yet perversely inside the law uh the the sort of the fabric but even the law itself on the internet is very tricky because now the tos uh, i i forget who tweeted it it must have been some bigger account that like the tos is now more important than the bill of rights which well, is hyperbole but you know i, I want to get jessica's uh i want to get jessica's response to this and also everybody subscribe and then i want to get to alex as well so I, let's talk about parlor. I mean, I, because you initially brought it up and I'll tell you this. So I, um, created a parlor account a few months back. And the entire reason why I did it was because I didn't want to talk about something. If I hadn't experienced it, I wanted to kind of know what was going on there. So I'm like the last person you would expect to see on parlor, but I created an account, spent some time, uh, just checking out this interface and like, honestly thought it was kind of garbage it was just it was just so basic there wasn't anything to it that would make you think oh my god this is really taking off I mean it was it was a dump and so there weren't really very many features but the point was that it wasn't about the features it was just a gathering place for people and so you know you couldn't really search it very well um, everything you would expect to see there was definitely there I checked in on parlor after everything happened this past week in DC. And of course, a lot of the rhetoric, and this is before Trump had been kicked off of Twitter or anything else. Um, a lot of the rhetoric was burn DC to the ground, fuck these people, these Democrats are horrible, hang them in the streets. I mean, it was legit violent nonsense. And um, here's the thing, I read Parler's Terms of Service. I wanted to know what would happen if somebody got online and said something incendiary or said something violent and threatening, what's the process here? So ultimately on Parler, if you um, say something awful, like I'm, I'm gonna kill that person or, what, or whatever, a person can take what you've said and they submit it to what is ultimately a panel that then gets to decide whether or not you have violated Parler's terms of service, if what you've said is violent, which is both dangerous and if you wanna look at it a bit cravenly, maybe smart, because it's subjective. It literally becomes more, it's, the emphasis is placed on the subjectivity of what has been said and depending on who is on this panel that is reviewing that commentary, you don't know what ruling is going to be handed down. You really don't know. But the, the really great thing about this experience with Parler and knowing how they've structured things is that subjectivity is overall, it is what's driving so much of this conversation anyway, because if you had a platform where a bunch of leftists got online and somebody you know, showed up and, and they made some sort of commentary about X and Y and Z person should be murdered in the street. D again, depending on the arrangement of the people who get to make the decision about whether or not that language is actually violent. Well, then you can get into the sociology of like, you know, what's a leftist versus a, versus a person on a right, on the right, who's more sympathetic, who's going to be more understanding, who's going to look for nuance, who's going to pay attention to the subjectivity of these statements. It is 
going to be hard to enforce because number one, you don't know who's on those, who's on the panel, who's judging the words that you've shared. And also the entire point behind Parlor was to present people with a place where they felt safe talking. Now, here's the thing. A lot of the conversation that I saw in there, I mean, and you guys can go ahead and roast me in the comments. I <laughs> will not give a shit about this. Oh, I yeah. read some of the most idiotic commentary I've ever read on the internet, like ever in these comments. A lot of people who were brainwashed in a way that doesn't do anybody any favors where, you know, there's a certain type of rhetoric that is just spouted over and over and over. If you, um, I, I did attempt to engage with someone on one of these matters and this was, this was off parlor. This was on Facebook. Um, there was a, another trash heap. Um, there was a state Senator in Arkansas who said that what happened at the United States Capitol was uh, fake. That didn't really happen which is bullshit, by the way. And a lot of his followers showed up and they were like, you're damn right, it was fake. That wasn't real at all. Um, I don't know what you do with people who do not operate within reality. They reject, they just reject reality um, as, as we can understand it. And it's like super, super hard to stomach that because I don't like giving up on people. I would like to think that you can help anyone. I tried my best in this forum to provide people with information that was not biased information, just facts. I made it very clear what side of the fence I'm on. I understand you can Google me and find out things that I've said and written and whatever. And I don't give a shit because if I give somebody information that is just clean, unbiased, nonpartisan information, that is the most I can do. And it still gets rejected. The siloing of political opinions in this country is so dangerous. Both party, both major parties are so guilty of peddling red meat and just lies to their followers because by doing so, you maintain power, you maintain influence. But what's happening is that it's destroying this country. It is eroding trust. It is eroding faith. It is it is going to be our one of our greatest regrets. And the only thing you can hope for is that people can find their way to information that is clean. But that's usually not what inspires someone to go looking. People have all of these tools now where they can just go listen to what they want to hear, what they think they want to hear. They don't have to be exposed to any sort of education whatsoever. They can just hide out in their little corner online. They're not engaging in conversations like this. And it's really frustrating to me because we're so much better than this as a people. This is this is like such a base way of operating and we can't get out from underneath it. Definitely. What is fake to find fake? I mean, we know that governments have staged a false flag operation. I'm not going to, yeah. I don't believe personally. Well, no, I mean, there were, fake, there were but... things like Operation, I mean, this is my inner Joe Rogan. You know, he always talks about Operation Northwoods, which was agreed upon everybody from uh, uh, the administration of JX, uh, JFK, except for JFK himself. And this is a Wikipedia entry that people can read, just as like one solid example. Another one would be like, where exactly can we meet as far as, uh, much more nuanced conversations about not things so ridiculous as saying that, you know, this whole thing that was televised with all these people that can be looked up that that's all fake. I think a nuanced approach would be if, let's say, somebody were to say, 
would it by any chance be possible that much like, again, going back to Joe Rogan, something he talked about a lot back in the old days, the 1999 Seattle WTO protests, where there were talks about there being agitators that intentionally went in there, started throwing rocks, and no, it's made probably, the entire thing look bad. No, it, it was probably real. It's like, I mean, I think like, I don't know, the, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if Q itself is a psyop. I mean, who knows, right? I mean, there's a lot of sophisticated things that the uh intelligence agencies are doing there have been i i don't know i just find it the the rhetoric that it's like some kind of i don't know coup attempt and insurrection when they were just i don't know i mean going in there and taking selfies they don't really know what they're right. doing I've, it's a spectacle well, no, i mean there were way. no well to uh to be fair there were at least from the reports that went out you know the pine pipe bomb situation and the situation with the laptop being stolen so there were examples of these but it's of part things. of the spectacle love that's the problem okay, i mean on. if they were really serious about yeah, yeah. not let, to fed post guys. but wait just, guys yeah. wait. the nature of the spectacle One of those itself pipe that bombs. It, okay my my office where i work if i walk out of the front door of my office and i then walk about 40 or 50 feet down to the corner of the street i can look to my right directly at the RNC headquarters, okay? And it is really easy to say that a pipe bomb is a part of a spectacle until the pipe bomb in question, one of them, not the other one that was down the street, isn't anywhere near your front door. The people who died that day, it doesn't, it, it almost doesn't even matter that they showed up there. It doesn't matter what side of the fence they were on. The, the woman who got shot and who bled out and you can watch her dying in a video that fucking sucks it sucks no but you don't understand why i mean had to die i mean the I, guy to board definition of spectacle meaning that it is the um template of images that are driven uh in any particular social um in any society uh images that carry with it certain um certain assumptions about the nature of collectively held uh, reality. That's what I mean by spectacle. So for instance, the people that were killed at the Capitol and the event that happened, now it's going, that further again, goes into certain narratives of, well, we need to really clamp down on these people and we need basically the war on terror to come home uh, and the domestic front and so forth and et cetera. The way that 9-11 justified uh, the Patriot Act and so forth. That's what I mean, because now it seems now that we have this uh, bleeding of entertainment politics and a total collapse of the consensus of what is uh, collectively shared reality itself. That is what I mean by spectacle and hyper reality. Not okay. that this thing was fake or that, I don't know, uh, the CIA concocted it somehow. I think just a lot of very stupid, impressionable, uh, cope and seethe people got together and did a very ridiculous and stupid thing. And mm -hmm. uh, I feel that this whole thing really uh, is the worst mistake these what do you want to call them? Q-tards has have ever made in terms of right-wing politics yeah. going forward. And baked Alaska. Now, oh, I mean, well, the yet? fact that grifters were there. Like, yeah, Jessica, did you know that there was this guy named Je Baked Alaska who has been a grifter for an incredibly long amount of time? He goes around. <laughs> like a he, cockroach. He keeps coming up. Wait, who's Baked Alaska? Oh, boy. He used uh, to, okay, he, he used to work as a BuzzFeed 
but then he grifted off of Milo back when he was doing his university tour in 2016. Then he became an alt-right, but then he denounced the alt-right. Then he became a griper. Uh, then he, like, I don't know, he just keeps uh, doing these ridiculous public stunts where, like, he'll go out and harass people in public. Like, uh, like I don't know, he'll harass, like, minimum wage work. There's so much deep lore. There's so much deep lore. Don't worry about Big Alaska. You, you've probably I'm seen right. a picture of him. Well, well, hold on one second. You've Look probably up Big seen Alaska, a picture of the him. Capital, that, yeah, yes. Exactly, yeah. Here it is. Here is the picture. Sharing it with uh, everybody. This is him. This is Big Alaska. And apparently that wasn't Nick Fuentes behind him. That was somebody else. Yeah, But Nick there's speculation that Fuentes, was, I don't know for sure. Fuentes says that he wasn't inside the building. Wait, but he was is he like, a proud boy as well? I hate to ask. I think I he was a part of he was a part of it, but then Gavin like personally kicked him out himself. So yeah. <laughs> wait, are we talking about wait, are we talking about Fuentes or uh, Baked Alaska? As far Baked as Alaska. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuentes was not a proud boy. Fuentes well, well, was the no, no. The Fuentes griper. is the leader of the the grapers. Uh, no, America first. Um, no, but no. Baked Alaska. He's a lily padder. He like a like a frog <laughs> that just jumps off different lily pads. So he went into the capital and he thought it was a brilliant idea to stream himself inside of Nancy Pelosi's office. He thought this was great for his clout and his super chats and his uh, D live lemons. That was really, he had 10,000 viewers. So I guess maybe it paid off until, I don't know, maybe yeah. until the See, FBI This is also an example it. of the spectacle that Gio was talking about. People are so enamored today by being able to hog the attention economy that they're willing to do such stunts. That's but, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's, but, yeah. But, to me, but to me, what's much more interesting to think about is, look, the Russian Revolution, you could say that it first got started, like the spark had nothing to do with anything that was set up. It was just an officer uh, who shot this other person, and then it just spiraled out of control. Now, you could say that maybe it would have started out in a different way some other time, sure. But what I'm saying is that people are really quick to point fingers at something going on behind the scenes, and like these people set that up, and that's how it started. No, but at the same time, I think it is important to ask ourselves, can such things in other circumstances whether or not they were being used here be used in the future where you would let's say have certain people who were implanted by who knows maybe the russian government maybe the chinese who the hell knows that they were implement that they were implanted and they would let's say start moving in a certain direction and kind of force the crowd into a situation that they want the crowd to be in now i'm not saying that that happened here i have no idea what exactly happened as far as who knows behind the scenes the investigations I think are still going to be, you know, coming uh, coming into fruition later on. But when it comes to being able to talk about this stuff, I think that is not something that should be completely dismissed as you are crazy and you are a fool for even considering that. And this is what I'm kind of trying to figure out. Like, how do we talk about this stuff knowing that there is this intelligence apparatus that is above everything as far as whether it's the foreign countries or whether it's the United States government, how can people, you know, be that secure in knowing that these things would not be enacted in a behind-the-scenes manner for certain agents pushing certain things in a certain configurations? Like, that's been a big concern for a lot of people online, where they do feel the sense of powerlessness and the sense of, like, all of this stuff is above us and they're just going to screw us in the end because everything is, you know, everything, according to them, is sort of set up and controlled by moving chess pieces in the right place. And again, I don't think so. I think that a lot of these things do occur spur of the moment and people take advantage of them and so on and so forth. 
but how do we just as people talking in this chat as well as you know like i would love for these kind of conversations to actually happen on cnn and fox and things like that because this is what's in people's minds right now and i don't think it's gonna go away nor do i think should it go away because there has to be a way that we can talk about these things openly so jessica let me know what you think about all that yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try. You, you you pack a lot into this. I know, I pack a lot. I pack, I'll, it's, I, I know. No, it's okay because you're you're driving the train here. Um, you want to know train. why? One of the reasons, one of the reasons why you're not going to have a conversation like this on Fox. I'll give you two big reasons. One, lack of time in the segments. Two, when you go on Fox, depending on the show you go on, which you know, the further up that Fox food chain, you like on the food chain as in importance of show, um, you are asked to submit your talking points before you go on to the show. So you are, you'll have a request to come onto the show. You are told what the topic will be. You were then asked to break down what the comment or what your talking points would be. So if you're smart enough, you'll know not to answer that. <laughs> like, why would you do that? Um, but the booking agent has a responsibility to know that they're going to have some sort of a, um, a balanced conversation. Um, so you have your talking points and um, you go on the show, but ultimately the host of said show is driving the conversation. And then what ends up happening is depending on the personality types in the show, you will have a clash or whatever. And so there's no room for a healthy dialogue there where people are actually going to learn anything, which is really sad because um, Fox News is usually, between Fox News and CNN, um, you are just gonna have a lot of chatter and you're you're going to find both of those programs on pretty much every waiting room in America. It's mostly yeah. what most people are exposed to. Yeah, but and, they're probably tired of it by now, I think. Well, I don't know. you would think that they are tired of it, but, um, one thing to keep in mind is this, people often parrot what they see. They parrot it down to uh, hand gestures, mannerisms, the way they pause when they speak, the way they ask questions, the tone of the voice, they parrot what they see. And when you have this dialogue and it's just kind of in the background, it is conditioning people to believe that this is what political discourse looks like. And it's not, it should be so much more robust than what this industry provides. But this industry has blurred the lines with entertainment. So you're not getting substance. It's entertainment, whether you're entertained or not. And it is what young people are growing up with and what they're seeing and thinking this is what politics is. It is can, it's um, giving people comfortable places to settle into. I mean, the majority- well, I don't think that Zoomers are watching it though. Like, honestly, I think Zoomers are watching the Quentes and all those people, you know, do, doing all their hijinks. Alex, mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I was thinking. Um, I mean, a bunch of a bunch of things at this point. Um, but the first thing that I thought that I was thinking about, which I felt like was um, missing generally from the conversation about Twitter's, um, isn't so much. You know, uh, I, I'm I'm less interested in you know the the relationship between corporate and state power there than I'm interested in what it was that makes Twitter such a particularly remarkable kind of social media, because it's a little crazy when you think about how small its user base is compared to sites like Instagram and Facebook, and yet it has such an outsized impact. Um, and, you know, I've, this isn't the first time I've thought this to myself. I've wondered about it in the past. Um, and I feel like part of it comes down to the idea that, you know, once you have a Twitter account, you're it would be as if when you joined Facebook, you were automatically friends with everybody else on Facebook. Um, you're, you're immediately put into the entire user base, right? That's who you get to talk to. Um, 
And, you know, for, for whatever reason, Twitter seems to be the account where, I guess, the highest concentration of, you know, official or unofficial celebrities feel most comfortable going off the record, even though it's on the record. Um, but, you know, people are, you have a lot of fairly prominent people who are willing to be pretty much themselves on this site. You know, that's, that's one of the things that makes it so so powerful and so attractive. Um, and, you know, and, and also so remarkable when, you know, I, someone, someone pointed out, um, and I, and I thought it was kind of funny, you know, that Trump conceded after they uh, first suspended his Twitter because, you know, they finally found a hostage he really cares about. No one wants to lose their account once they have one. Um, it, it's a remarkable voice to have in a remarkable kind of forum. Um, and so this also takes me back to the idea that, you know, the political discussions you see on TV are what people grow up thinking politics, you know, consists of what it looks like. Um, this, I, I don't know why kids younger than me, I'm 31 going on 32, but you know, it was certainly true for me that I thought, you know, the daily show and things like that were, you know, what politics is kind of about growing up, you know, that was my impression in college. Um, but I think that what makes something like Twitter so remarkable is that um, the thing about TV that gets me isn't that it's like informed discourse or entertainment or that, you know, these are these are options. What, what gets me about TV is that it's programming. It is predetermined and it's, you know, it's, it's going to carry a certain narrative. The narrative can change depending on which channel you look at um, or even just, you know, over time as channels change their mind about things. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all, you know, uh, it's, it's not, it's not emergent, I guess. Um, and that's what is, you know, interesting and threatening um, about sites like Twitter is you have emergent conversations there on Twitter. The political conversation can be, you know, whoever you bring to the table, really. There's there's no scripting, there's no sort of predetermined idea of where it's going to go, like you get on any TV channel, you know, regardless like of the, the orientation they try to have. So I'm, what I'm hoping for is just that, you know, the the TV mode of informing people, you know, which evolved from the radio mode of informing people, which in turn was, you know, an upgrade from newspapers, that you know, in the same way that I don't want trains to go away, I don't want TV to go away entirely, but I would just like for it to no longer have the same kind of outsized role that it has in how people get their information. Um, and that it's valuable to remember that a lot of people walk around informed purely by delusions, um, you know, and, and they can hold down jobs and provide for their families while being completely delusional every single day. Um, you know, this is a little scary when you think about the potential consequences of it, but the fact is that's how it's always been you know, we have we have a unique spotlight on that now because of advances in technology. Um, but, you know, it's, it's more useful to start thinking about, uh, you know, the political conversations we have in terms of people talking to each other, you know, in a peer to peer way, rather than, you know, a speech coming from a organization going down to its viewers. Well, there's an interesting element here that uh, I think a lot of people who are, let's say, more on the Beltway mainstream side, I really hope that they're going to be paying a lot more attention to, which is, I don't know, Jessica, if you've seen this graph with the uh, low wit, mid wit, and high wit. Uh, in order, like, Geo, how would you describe that graph proper? Like, what exactly it represents? Oh, based on IQ distribution? I, yeah, well, see, but, I wouldn't say that it's IQ well, necessarily. Like, IQ would be, like, the example that people use a lot. But for me, it would be more like wisdom, let's say. or well, uh, yeah, yeah, the high wit the high wit and, like, the people at the top percentile of IQ, um, 
in the people at the, the bottom half, they seem to have some sort of, the, the graph is saying that there's a weird connection between people who uh, go off of base instincts as um, people who are like on the lower end of intelligence and people are on the high, highest ends. They tend to agree with that, but they arrive at it at different ways. Whereas people who would be considered midwits or average or above average IQ, the graph, the meme is that these are people who are going to have the most, um, what would you say, over-socialized opinions because they believe in a sort of uh, faith within objective standards of uh, science and morality and so forth. So therefore, they're more likely to go along uh, with the social consensus because they think that they've arrived at it at this like very high IQ um like I, I trust and believe in whatever, you know, science and rationality and so forth. Whereas people on the highest end and the lowest end, they share a certain propensity to go with gut instincts, but arriving at it at different ways. So that's like, so the midwit would say that, uh, I don't know. Um, All Trump supporters are Nazis. It's just a spin on the horseshoe theory meme, right? It's basically saying that there's a center where most people end up. Um, which has average and tepid opinions. And then it's at the fringes where people either through brilliance or through stupidity keep on arriving at the same conclusions. Um, and so, you know, in, in politics, they would talk, they'd call it the horseshoe theory, right? Where you have mm. the mass of moderates um, who have, you know, one set of opinions. And then you have the left and right fringes who have, you know, their own opinions, which are oddly convergent. Um, and so, you know, that that idea of this, you know, coalition at fringes versus you know the mainstream and the reason why i bring it up is that i think a big mistake of the mainstream why i think we partly got to the situation we're in right now this really bad uh, really bad situation is that i think that they dismissed and they didn't listen to a lot of the complaints that were being echoed from the fringes uh, especially like the fringes in middle america trump country because even if the conclusions they get to could be really bad, could be incredibly stupid. Mm -hmm. The things that are driving those conclusions, which they may not even be able to explain themselves, I think that that is something that has been kind of left on the shelf, left on the shelf, uh, you know, just to decay. Nobody paid it any attention, and I think that's why we're in the situ situation we're in right now. Because I don't know if a lot of people are able to properly address this is why we're screwed. This is the problems that we're facing. So they, you know, bring it up to, you know, like so many people on 4chan, for example, would blame, you know, members of, uh, you know, where uh, half of my parentage came from. If we're talking about pointing the finger at someone, I think that's horrible. But the situation is, is that they still see that there are certain forces that have been in play, whether it's just the advent of technology, like I mentioned in the beginning of the stream, which resulted in them being jobless, or whether there are other deals that have been made early on that resulted in this. This is the big issue, I think, today. This is something that I pray to God a lot of people in the mainstream are going to pay attention to. And before I uh, open this up more to the chat, to cement what I'm saying here a little bit better, here was a comment that I left for Jake, who uh, I hope he's going to be joining us. I'm not exactly sure, but here it is. <clears throat> Plus, everybody subscribe. So there's an assumption, which I have thought of uh, as a Schrodinger's cat type of assumption. While history experiences extremes which go out of control, what people attribute to the quote-unquote elites 
consolidating power and next stop are the gulags is actually something else. What it may be is the elites being in the habit of co-opting anything that arises in the fringes so that they control it for the sake of maintaining order while, as with any imperfect system, wetting their own beak in the process. In this case, all the wokeness is controlled not to lead to even more wokeness down the line, but to taper it beyond a certain point in order to return to normalcy, like grabbing a wild bull by the horns and letting it angrily vent while it eventually runs out of steam. The opposite would be this bull, or a true believer communist, were to gain grassroots support while choosing to receive funding by the Chinese, Russians, etc., and rise to a high position of leadership away from the system of elites, such as the DNC and other Beltway mainstainers. If this was the case, though no, this was the case in the last century, where you had influential people such as Ernest Hemingway, who was an actual Stalinist agent, as well as Albert Einstein, who had a spy lover uh, and had communist sympathies, not to mention the army of agitators funded by the USSR. So the question in this case is whether the wetting of the beak of this co-opting establishment system resulted in a far greater economic disparity, plundering of the U.S. industrial sector, psychological terrorism, and laying out the foundations of a future, intentional or not, gulag archipelago, that those opposing the system would find themselves in. So whether or not any of the stuff that I just said to you guys right now would be what it, what it actually is, as opposed to what may also be just as likely technology progresses, people wet their beaks a, be a bit, but it's not necessarily this doomsday scenario as I described. The pressure that a lot of people in Trump country are feeling that resorts to them talking about Q and a lot of these conspiracy theories is that they feel that something has been taken away, that something has been extracted for, you know, several, you know, several different decades. And they're trying to put the finger on something. They don't know what it is, but the people who are on the coastal areas, they ignore it. They dismiss it. They don't want to talk about it. And we're in a strange situation right now. I know I said a lot here, but uh, Jessica, I don't yeah. know. Would you like to comment? Sure, I'll I'll jump in. This won't be comprehensive um, in relation to everything that you've said, but I'll start here. The people who are Q curious, um, I don't view as the same as the majority of Americans who feel frustrated and who are loud uh, about that frustration. And a lot of these people are right to feel frustrated because they haven't seen their wages rise in a uh, meaningful way in decades. They, uh, but they are on the receiving end of prices going up, um, you know, your rent becoming more expensive, uh, fewer opportunities. They, uh, there may be generational differences where, you know, when they were the age, at the ages that we are now, when they were learning, they, they didn't have the same opportunities. Certain industries hadn't emerged. They do feel left behind. They feel frustrated and they feel scared and everything about their security feels like it's under siege and they want, they need to identify an enemy. They want to find what, what lies at the root of their pain. And with Q, you know, look, we are talking about people who basically believe in fucking ghosts. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm not really interested in giving people who make up really insane shit to make themselves feel better, 
I'm not going to lump them in with Joe and Martha and, and Dan and all these people who just want to figure out how to pay their rent and raise their families and protect themselves and to have a sense of security. I'm just not going to lump these people in together um, because anytime you get to engage in politics, especially when you get to be super vocal about it and your politics guides your day to day, that is, I hate to say it, a place of privilege. There is nothing wrong with wanting to engage in politics, but your politics shouldn't be your identity. And I say this as a person who works in politics. I am incredibly frustrated with working in politics because I love the concept of government. I love the challenge of making complex things work well for people, but I don't get excited about politicians or, or candidates. That just doesn't work for me. I try my best to understand where people are coming from. I know that it's fun to shit on people who work in politics and to shit on political movements. I get it. And that there's also this weird undercurrent of elitism when people get to be like, I'm not very political. I'm just kind of on the periphery. And it's like, politics still plays a role in your life, whether you like it or not. You can downplay it all you want. But this idea that we are now getting to um, a, a place in society, and this may be viewed as a more free society or not, I'm not sure, and I'm sure this is subjective, but to allow people to have their own truth, despite what is true. To We are at a place in this world where people, um, and you see this a lot among sociopaths, they get to tell you that up is down and down is up and they act a certain way, but because they're sociopaths, they are entitled to their understanding of the truth, their reality, regardless of the harm that their reality and their adherence to it and their actions within it, uh, regardless of what harm that causes other people. And at some point, there has got to be some sort of agreement on a handful of things so that we can all just get by in this world without having just total calamity around us. I'm not really interested in living in that experiment, but well, I also understand. Yeah, but the problem is like the Q people it. are normal people. Like nowadays, I mean, is that well, any no, different well, from we the could Russian take you, hoax? Like, well, we could take like you out of, well, hold on, hold on. We could take no, but you the out problem, of the window My for point a would be that, the reason that this is happening is because it reveals an undercurrent with the North American society in general. Like people talk about conspiracy theories, but America, the metaphysics of America itself is built upon conspiracy theories. America was founded, you could argue, on a conspiracy theory. You know what I mean? So that's that's the thing. I mean, it's in the lifeblood of discourse itself. And now it's just going to accelerate. And by deeming a whole section of society unworthy of discourse itself that will further illustrate this sort of need to find um alternative explanations especially when mm. people at the highest level the experts and so forth etc they're not to be trusted by their own actions and by their own rhetoric and like even just now i'm browsing twitter and i'm seeing like terrorism expert talking about the 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 magatards and the Q people, and it's like this early two thousands Bush lumped era. Together. That, that's this, the other thing yeah. that's troubling me here. The, that but this is what I mean. People, it's yeah. about the the control the control of information itself and the various channels and flows of of like you know Lev, you were saying about how the state has to appropriate, and not just the state, but also like you could say the 
most powerful organs of society, whether it's the state or corporations or so forth, having to appropriate what is was organically started and created on places. I wouldn't like the say Internet. no. I wouldn't say organically. I'd say that partly it was created from the USSR pumping a lot of money and influence. Where no, no, you know, but I'm just saying in general, like yeah. all like the things that are originally created by people by mutual interaction, then they are appropriated or sanitized or taken over sure. and. and well, this, this I think, so is forth. actually the most important thing, which I the, bet the, yeah, this the, is not brought up. Yeah, the state has to appropriate the war machine, yeah. put it that way. Well, not, not, not just the war machine, but I bet, Jessica, this is, I think, one of the most important things we can even discuss here. Because yeah. this is not something that I think has ever even been brought up. It may be something everybody kind of knows, but dare not even mention it out loud, which is this. Which is that the job of the establishment, the elites, whatever the hell you want to call them, has been with a lot of this wokeness, with a lot of the hashtag BLM, all these things, it has been in a way the control and the co-opt of what would have otherwise been, like I said in my long rant, a more grassroots, if not funded by other governments, type of leftist <laughs> movement that would have then attracted a lot of people towards it. So one of the jobs that the elites has is being able to keep that under control. Now, the question is, uh, yes. I'm trying to hang in there with you. Okay. Um, because I, I just want to ask, and I, I don't mean to okay. be, I don't want, I'm not, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I want to understand. Sure. So is what you're getting at, are you basically calling into question how organic any of these movements have been no what i am calling into question well, is whether they keep being organic or <laughs> whether they get subjugated and controlled and maintained for the sake of order for the sake of peace a lot you know in you know within a lot of these uh, a lot of these systems because yeah. if we're talking about just regular people who work in government or work in any uh, banks or whatever I don't think they want to live in some communist dictatorship. I don't think they want to live in a place where language is constantly being policed and where the weather underground. No, they want control. you to live in the communist dictatorship, not them. That's well, hold the on, difference. hold on. We're going to get to that because this is the frustration. <laughs> this is the frustration that a lot of people are seeing. I mean, look, Jessica, I come from the USSR. My family has been through hell and back as far as the amount of power that the government has. Because we're so, let's say, cynical when it comes to a lot of these flowery statements that politicians make, we know how bad it can get. So in a way, we're grateful. We're grateful for there being politicians who come in and say, you know, hashtag BLM, I am in agreement with all these things that you're talking about. Antifa is just an idea because I get it. I understand that there is a reason to do that because otherwise the bull gets out of control. Otherwise, who knows who, which government is going to be able to fund and maintain that bull and grow it into something that is completely going to topple a lot of the institutions that I think are very important and critical. I am for hierarchy. I am somebody for there being a system where there are people who set a tone. And I think this is one of the reasons why Trump was so repulsive to people, because he broke from that. He did not maintain the civil tone that a lot of the people in the elites have. So, uh, you know, I think that definitely contributed among a lot of other things. Like, I was definitely not a fan of, let's say, when he told everybody to go out to the Capitol. Meanwhile, you know, he should have been in the front, by the way. That would have been a heroic move. And he... But did he not... tell people to go to the Capitol? Yeah, he did. 
So, oh, okay. Yes, that's... and I think that's one of the yeah. But you didn't tell him to go here. and uh, well, no, no, no. Well, that's, we're not going to get into that right now. It's too much, too much of a bag of worms at this point. I'm not but defending. I'm... I think that Trump was largely. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I I should shut my mouth because I'm going to piss off people on both sides. <laughs> okay. I, I question. Put it this way, I question the whole like he was playing five D chess thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Put it that. Seven seven D backgammon. But what seven D backgammon. But what I'm getting to here, Jessica, seven D Russian is, checkers is while it could be said that I am completely wrong about this, that and I do believe that there are like people who not just cynical, but there are people who care about the country, who want things to improve, but at the same time understand that there has to be a show that needs to be put on for the people that are junior revolutionaries, for the people that actually want us to be in, you know, a system where everybody has their hashtag, uh, has their pronoun written on their hat. I had, a, I had a dream like that. I had a dream that there were these Antifa people who had like their pronouns and race, racial characteristics written on their hats. But anyway, the point that I'm getting to well, here that's is Cyberpunk that, 2077. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But the point that I'm getting to here, Jessica, is that if we have this kind of elite, like I mentioned, I don't have a problem with that. I can understand why something like that would be done. My problem, though, is if the joke goes too far. And if, let's say, we do have people on the fringes right now who are talking about how all these Trump supporters, you know, that they all should be like on no fly list and they should be rounded up. And now we have people that are revealing the addresses of the people on parlor. And you and I both know that throughout this whole year, there have been riots. There have been all these horrible things that have happened where people who are living in the suburbs have been harassed. People who are Trump supporters have been harassed as well. And my concern is that at a certain point, I don't know when the, let's say, the maintenance of this control that the elites would have over these fringe left elements would be maintained, or at which point, which I hope would never happen, or at which point the elites themselves would start morphing and actually becoming true believers in this idea of like, you know, uh, free speech isn't good if it's the ones that we're against, and maybe in the future, some Gen Alpha, like I'm going to skip Gen Z, some Gen Alpha generation may decide, you know what, maybe Stalin had a point. Maybe we should send all these racists and bigots to these re-education camps and we actually have the infrastructure to do that. Now, I'm not saying that that's, what, that that's what's going to happen, but I'm just, I want to present to you, Jessica, the scenario where on one hand, by I the, don't have a problem with the maintenance and on the other hand, I do. And how can we go from here? By the way, love, speaking of censorship, I can't believe this. One of my longtime friend of us all on Twitter, on our spheres, longtime mutual, one of the first big mutuals of mine. They, I can't believe Jack got him. Kalish Jansen, poor one out for mm. a real one. Kalish Jansen, they clipped him on Twitter. I can't believe this. What did Press he F. even do? Press F. Press F to show Alex, you know Kalish, right? You've seen him around? I know him very well, yeah. Yeah. He gave me some what, what, yeah. what, what happened? Why would he not be on Twitter anymore? I don't know. They suspended him. He, I guess he didn't even post anything that was um, directly uh, confrontational or anything. I don't know. They just... All, yeah, all, yeah. All is he's, you know, he's, he's a family man. He's got like eight kids. Um, but um, his, his posting can be rambling and chock full of words. And so if you are looking through it to find something to ban him for, I'm sure it wouldn't be very difficult. Yeah. Uh, 
kind of like uh, kind of like my monologues but uh but jessica in, in in all in all serious here seriousness here the reason why i was rambling on for so long about this is because this is something that's like a fairy or a wisp that just flies by a lot of conversations i have and i just want to see what exactly can we grab onto here that is uh, that is legitimate so let's take the first one the first step which is uh this idea I have of a lot of people within the establishment knowing that if we don't control and there was even a plot of uh, I believe Peaky Blinders I really like that show there was that plot where they also ended up kind of controlling these communist elements and we could say similar things have happened in the British uh, government when they took control of a lot of the union workers and a lot of these things away from the communists so they are able to maintain it and they're able to maintain order and decency and all that so I would just love to get a comment from somebody like yourself who is more on the inside about uh, some like this and uh, whether you could see what I'm getting at here as far as there being a necessity for this kind of maintenance otherwise it would go out of control yeah so I uh, I'll try I'll take a run at this I I will tell you that I think that this idea of this larger body that's keeping these these movements in control or kind of under a thumb so to speak it's so far less organized than that. Um, politics isn't that sophisticated. Government isn't that sophisticated. The only thing that's sophisticated in this country um, would be the ways that we manipulate each other. And it is not uncommon for a movement to exist, but then to be activated by a group that would benefit from its activation, You know, whether it be in an election year or whatever, and they activate it by giving it money, um, you know, collaborating on a message. There is really no group in this country that is organized around an issue that is so big and so scary that the government feels a need to control it. It doesn't exist. And the only thing that this country, I think, has seen that has scared it, it's, it's the people who engage in, acti in activities online and you don't know who they are, you don't know where they are, but they're a unified front. I mean, look at what Anonymous did and look at how the government has been perplexed. They have every reason in the world to be scared of a unified front that exists online, that somehow has collaborated, is in agreement on what its behaviors, what, it, what its activities will be, and it cannot be controlled. These other movements that you see on the ground, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, when you talk about... Um, Antifa or or the Proud Boys or any any of these groups, which I would not say um, should be defined all the same ways, unless you're broadly speaking, no one's looking to control these people because none of I mean, they haven't been as threatening. I mean, Black Lives Matter continued to get louder and louder and louder as examples were given of police brutality that had gone unchecked. And that is not to say that some police officers weren't held accountable, but overall, one would one would rightly make the case that it is an epidemic that hasn't been addressed. And I don't know how you're going to, because it, there are reforms that would have to happen all across the board to address these issues. So, I mean, I and I well, also the, the burning of buildings, though, a burning of businesses, that would be a danger level. That's so, pretty. Well, step in real quick here, sure. um, because. You know the the way that you've characterized this dilemma um i feel like sounds you know almost almost word for word 
the way that you know someone on the left might characterize uh, Trump's relationship to the people who stormed the Capitol, you know, as, as far as uh, you know, adopting the rhetoric of a radical online movement and then you know sort of going along for the ride um, and then you know it getting out of his control um, or not, you know, staying entirely within his control. Everyone look at it, um, and I don't think I don't know. It's it's not a way. I I just I don't know if this is a good way to characterize uh, any any such like online movements and their relationship with people in power. Basically, I don't think it's an accurate description. Well, I, I can give an example where it wouldn't be control as much as, you know, somebody, it wouldn't be the control of somebody sitting behind a desk and, you know, doing like, ha ha ha, like I am the puppet master, I control. No, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about right. is, it, yeah. That's what it sounds like, though, you know, and that's no, kind of the no, thing. No, 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 no. What, I, what I'm saying when I'm talking about the elites maintaining control over movements is something more like, Let's say, for example, um, you had well, that. Example, yeah. Well, you, you had that a uh, gun, uh, the anti-gun march that was going on. Well, anonymous with, uh, is an example. They were taken over by the feds. I mean... Sure. Well, we're not gonna get to that yet. Uh, <laughs> like with the with the with the anti-gun march that was going on with Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg and all that. Like, I could at least tell from just the optics of how this was presented that there was a way for people who are let's say much more on the left who would be for let's say gun confiscation to feel like they were being listened to to feel like they were being heard and i think this idea of people on the top making sure that people who would let's say otherwise go against them seeing them as this bad establishment that doesn't care about anybody that i think that there is a great power to being able to present this kind of image of i do care about you look at all these things we're going to do for you look at how much we love you and you know, I think both sides share these kind of presentations. I have seen them a lot going on as far as appealing to a lot of these far left causes, while at the end of the day, not really following through with a lot of the things that right. well, the far left wants you to follow through with. To, to the point, right? Because, you know, of course, of course, people in power can offer concessions to, you know, whatever movement they feel like. Um, but at a certain point, that's, that's a dangerous game to play, because if, it's an organization that has any kind of staying power, they'll eventually start wondering where the actual results are. Um, and you can't just, Yeah, you know, but if they have run. the memory of a goldfish in the collective sense, then they don't, which I'd be interested to see, like, would that happen? Because think of last time well, no, Bernie, but a Bernie was totally uh, gotten rid of, and they seem to forget it the next time around. Right, well, so, okay, this is another thing, by the way, because I, I also work in government, um, and I will be the first to say that, you know, People who do not work in government think way too much about elected politicians and way too little about, you know, appointed politicians and bureaucrats. If I'm if I'm yeah, trying the, to make PMCs, yeah. in, in the department that I'm working at, um, the the people in office in Massachusetts, that does have consequences for me. Um, it determines, you know, things like what the budget priority is going to be. But, you know, realistically speaking, my main obstacles are going to be other appointed, you know, bureaucrats like myself. Those are the people who I need to win over. Um, and that's kind of like how, how actual government like gets done. Um, and so uh, the same people who will pay too much attention to electeds um, to the exclusion of everything else, because you know there's nothing wrong with paying attention to electeds. It's just when you think that's the whole picture. Um, they might be the same sort of people who are going to get uh, taken along with just promises and not worry too much about delivery. 
Um, on the other hand, you know, and this is why I said any organization that has some serious staying power um, in its advocacy is going to be looking at results and it will be looking at, uh, you know, more than just uh, spoken endorsements from um, elected politicians. But yeah, those... that's, yes. No, but that's, yeah, that's a great point. That's the nature of the PMCs, the private managerial um, class. It's it's not so much elected politicians, but rather it, it's not even, I would say, conscious effort, although I would say that there are rivaling elites that fight with each other, but yet they, they are um, involved in certain funding networks, but it's more of certain discourses that are taken up within the sort of workings of the, you know, post-Cold War consensus in North America, especially. And there's a certain way of doing things that, you know, tests for resistances and does not allow those resistances to get to a certain point. And there's a sort of immune system that the system has that isn't necessarily conspiratorial, but has just developed over time. So for instance, why do you think that every sort of institution like what, what do you want to call it? The cathedral. That's just like the basic NRX like term for it. But let's just say that every cathedral organ operates in unison, not so much because there's people in a smoky room at, a, at the top, but rather there are a certain set of assumptions and certain images of thought that go into governance itself. Yes. That, and actually yeah. I, I've got a very specific case study for that. Um, I was thinking of retweeting these earlier today. Um, I never got around to it. So, oh, well. Um, but in the example of transportation and transportation funding, the assumption that floats around and sort of causes people to behave as if, you know, prompted by conspiracy, but really they're all just sharing some pretty common assumptions um, about how things are supposed to work. Uh, that assumption is that the most significant or most important sort of transportation, you know, the top priority is commuting transport, you know, people going to and from work and, and especially at certain times of the day during weekdays and you know this this we we over optimize for the perceived needs of people in this category without really stepping back to ask you know what what share of actual transportation that occurs falls into this category to begin with it's like the smallest then, percent know, of transportation yeah. if we are trying to you know meet its needs do we meet those needs better by optimizing specifically for this category or by building something that you know uh works for any categories, I guess. Um, so yeah, and, and I, I could come up with a dozen, a dozen more examples. The thing that I was thinking of retweeting was just some um, old mass.work work on trip purposes and how those are categorized and things like that. Um, one of my favorite observations from that was just that uh, the travel to work percentage was lowest uh, in the modes of transportation, which had the highest ridership, um, you know, which again suggests that the more the more generalized the purpose of the transportation system, the broader the base of riders that it can pull on. And so, you know, if you want to pull in lots and lots of riders, you can't only be thinking about one particular kind of transportation. But because so many people are already out there thinking that, you know, this is their priority, this is what they should be working on, and this is, you know, where the problems really are, you know, you're held up in traffic for five minutes going to work, this is a problem, we got to work on it. Um, because that's what everyone's going for, it seems like a conspiracy to ignore all the other issues that people are having, you know? Um, and man, if you, if you ever want to talk to some discouraged people, talk to people who work in transit and want to expand it, it can be very discouraging. Um, and it does feel, you know, like so much of it is out of your hands. This is one of the reasons that 
you know, I talk so much on Twitter about uh, the importance of fair box recovery. Um, it's, it's not about, you know, uh, pursuing the bottom line or like, you know, everything needs to make money. It's just a simple matter of the transit agency has a lot more discretion uh, to pursue rider needs with money that is supplied directly from riders and not, you know, allocated through a budgetary process in government, you know? Um, if, if we're allocated funding from the state or from towns, then that state and those towns have obviously a say in what we can do with that money. And they are not necessarily people who work in transportation themselves. They don't necessarily know what we need to be spending on, but since it's their money, they get to decide. Um, and so, you know, trying to untangle this problem is one of the things that consumes my day to day. Um, but yeah. Um, and we have a comment you know, from Wong Carway about that. Convergent uh, behavior from people, which looks conspiratorial, but really is just try, trying to figure out basically the, the thought that's in their heads that is making them act in this way that seems coordinated is, is the interesting part, you know, and for me, like I've settled on a couple of things, like the idea of, uh, you know, the importance of nine to five commuter needs being one of these thoughts that is producing bad outcomes. And uh, Wong Karwai says he's right about how discouraging this trance and stuff can be. Our local company has been forced to change their massive plan so many times. So there we go. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a big problem. Uh, but when it comes to being able to, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to present this idea like uh like Alex was t talking about before that there are people sitting in a smoky room much like the smoke that's going on behind me which you guys in Zoom can't see but the audience does cuz this is an OBS but anyway this is not how I imagine a lot of these things I can give you guys a better example where let's say we have for example um somebody like um like Cuomo and Cuomo was talking about there is this beautiful land that's like uh, close, I don't know if it's close to the Bronx or Yonkers or somewhere around this area that uh, is going to be used for, he wants to turn it into a public park. Now, people before were asking him about affordable housing, and he was for that. He said, like, we need affordable, affordable housing. But at the same time, nobody really said that much about, wait a minute, why do you want to build a public park? Why aren't you going to build affordable housing here? And I think the reason was that he put on, and I think very intelligently for someone who wants to do this park, a show that, you know, like these houses, this affordable housing, it is absolutely important to me, much like, uh, you know, other politicians in the past have declared how important certain things are to them. And this is the total opposite of what happened with Trump, because Trump would go on stage and he would say anything that was on the dude's mind. And everybody loved it. Everybody was like, yeah, he says what he means and all this, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, how much was somebody like Trump able to achieve from saying what's on his mind as opposed to people who are much better about the way that they talk and the way that they present their ideas and what they want people to focus on emotionally as opposed to what is the reality that they are living on, whether it's the restrictions that Alex talked about or whether it's any other plans that have been in the making, you know, there is a certain emotional appeal that I think works. When you put it out there, people grab onto it and they don't really care that much at the end of the day whether or not you even go through with it if you spoke in such a way that appealed to them. Like that is another, I think, strategy which uh, should be acknowledged. 
So I don't know, uh, Jessica, if you have any thoughts on that. So, okay. When you brought up Trump being the mouthpiece, you know, like it was entertaining that he would say things that people were thinking and they were kind of surprised that somebody would have the audacity to break these norms. You know, I think everybody's always looking to find that disruptor. You can't, it's, it's, it's so hard to ignore a disruptor, especially when they're absurd in their behavior. And there were so many people who thought, oh, this guy doesn't stand a chance, but they couldn't quite reconcile that the guy who didn't stand a chance was this guy who had been basically a, you know, building his brand since the 1970s and 80s, right? He had really been, he'd been around for a while. And, you know, the culture just, just in New York alone, that culture where he'd already built a name, you know, that's powerful enough. And then he had taken it beyond New York and, you know, his, he managed to make his name synonymous with wealth. And for so many people, they just thought that's the American dream. They, it was the idea of money, which to a lot of people is a construct, right? And then you um, stop asking questions about his actions. And instead you lean into this brand and all of a sudden you have this idea that he's, you know, he's running for office, which he told Oprah back in the 1990s, right? That he would potentially do so. And he ends up running for office and you, um, and you see this person who you think, oh, is this going to be the guy who pulls the curtain back on everything so we get to see it? And instead, what you got was basically the equivalent of some doofus who was really, really accustomed to, to knowing how to get his way by operating in a certain ecosystem where, you know, where force and, uh, and you know, you'll often hear people refer to him as uh, kind of his behaviors as mob-like, gang-like, like being a thug. And so you ended up getting this lesser version of what you thought you would get. And the one thing that he managed to actually expose for everyone was the fragility of the country, you know, because for so long we had been getting by on these unspoken understandings, these agreements of these lines that we wouldn't cross, but then the lines keep getting crossed in this administration. And that's not to suggest that they hadn't been crossed in others. I'm just talking about his. And so we end up having the lines getting crossed and then people rationalizing why it was okay for these lines to be crossed. And then you, you know, there comes a point where people start to peel off and they're looking behind, like they're looking back and they're like, Whoa, we've really gone a long way down this rabbit hole. Maybe this isn't so good because, you know, yeah. Is it true that he didn't get credit for certain things he got right? Yes, absolutely. But is it also true that he caused a lot more harm than good? And that was purely a product of the fact that not that he's stupid, because in some ways he's not stupid, in some ways he's smart, but it's because he was motivated by personal gain and he had the most powerful position on planet Earth. And yeah, but so, what gain is he getting now? He's going to be broke. Yeah. Uh, he might go to jail. Uh, well, I, also beyond his that, family's so, pretty yeah, much yeah, done for. Super Iron Bob. The, the proof that someone is motivated by gain is not in the outcomes that they get. It's, you yeah, know, it's that's true. motivation, that's true. you know? Well, Super Iron Bob had a... Because they're motivated by gain. If they get, you know, arrested for it, eh, well, yeah, that, that doesn't in, mean they're motivated by gain, you know? But well, in some Iron ways, Trump is the perfect spectacle, American spectacle president. Trump is like the throwback of everything that represents... Um, America within the last 60 years, like this boorish capitalist, uh, like 80s vaporwave president. I mean, come on, mm. how how more? Of, yeah, we all uh, miss the 80s, I, even if we didn't live there. 
Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like how, like this is the thing. He was a, largely a creation of the Hollywood culture industry machine that spit mm. him out, and I feel that that's why there was such an impetus to get rid of him because these people know that type of uh, creature of the spectacle that was being put into office. But I want to throw out there though, it's, it's even more than Hollywood. It's, it's a culture that really, I mean, really was specific to New York to live yeah, in that's, that yeah. environment. It's, yeah. I know it seems small compared to this idea of Hollywood. And I guess by that standard it is, but, but it is so much more um, distinct and it is so much more targeted that way. And he, you know, he took his wealth and, you know, or he took his brand, even though his brand had been flawed for so long. This kid was born on, or was born on third base, but then he has hotels and he has, you know, for, for every 100 ideas, he's got a couple that are lucrative and then he builds off of it. But he also engaged in shaking people down for money and not making good on his deals. And I mean, he's literally like if you just took the guy and stripped away as well, but associated his behaviors to just more common things that you would run into in your day to day with, you know, like Joe on the street. Would you want to really be friends with that person or could you could be friends with that person as long as you knew who they were but would you trust them with much no not really sue Pryor and bob had an interesting comment a bit back where he said he did pull back the curtain by how people opposed him and i think that's a very interesting thing to uh talk about as well because you do get this idea where you have stephen colbert and stephen colbert lovable stephen colbert he makes everybody laugh and then once somebody gets in there who is like trump all of a sudden a lot of people who are like the quote-unquote deplorables they're seeing another side of old stephen that they don't really like and to them it feels like the mask has been taken off and their approach to a lot of these people has been basically like they took off this mask of the entertainer and at least to these people they appear to be absolutely vi- now you could say that the trump supporters are the same way to those people but regardless there has been this antagonism that's flared up and i also wonder how much let's say what i was talking about before about how the elites have to maintain this wokeness to kind of uh you know make sure things don't get out of control how much do you think jessica the woke factor has been raised because of trump because when he went all the way this way people had to you know as a response go all the way the other way so we could say that the wokeness that we saw under obama could have actually tapered off and you know just been more you know handled a little bit better than what ended up happening now sure i try to i try to understand wokeness in tears um you know there's the general wokeness where you're just encouraging respect you're encouraging, encouraging equality and just people being able to get a fair shake. You know, there's the top of it. And then you go, you know, you'd start digging a little deeper. And then that's when you get to a place where, you know, you're, you're, you're getting to pronouns and which pronouns you use. And I mean, you, there, there are just, there are levels to this, right. And there, everybody has an extent to which they feel comfortable and then they run into a wall where they're unable or they're struggling to rationalize the importance of a certain level uh, in the wokeness pyramid. And, you know, I think generationally you'll see people um, have an easier time going further into that, into the wokeness uh, triangle or pyramid. But, um, you know, all of that is in response to people feeling marginalized whether you agree with their marginal, this idea of marginalization or not, right? And so if a person feels like 
the way in which they've been marginalized reduces their ability to be able to live a full and happy and equal life, then they're going to engage in, you know, some sort of um, wokeness that I can't quite define here that's not going to set well with people. And when that wokeness makes someone uncomfortable, there's always going to be somebody waiting to take all the people who have been made to feel uncomfortable and then either become their mouthpiece or even manipulate them. I mean, it's it's this never ending tennis match. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much a, a live and let live type as much as I can be. I'm not perfect. And, you know, I have bias too. Um, but I, you know, I, I would like for everybody to be able to, to live their lives peacefully and feel as if they have a, an opportunity to have a fair shake at life. But I'm also of the mindset where like, you know, to me, there are a handful of, of rules that if we could, or just ideas that if we can just agree upon, we can all at least get along and not completely annihilate each other. Um, I don't like these charlatans who find the, the weak spots in the armor and they chisel their way in and then they manipulate from within. I don't like those weasels and they exist on the left and the right. And they're very hard to identify because oftentimes they're very charismatic and they develop followings. And then when you speak out against them, you're immediately lumped in with anything that would be considered opposite of them. When in fact, there are plenty of people who are not on either side and they just want everyone to shut the fuck up and be reasonable and calm down. But it's really hard to be the person screaming, screaming that because then by default, you become some sort of traffic cop and there's always going to be someone yeah. you're not like that too, right? It's hard to scream, uh, scream for reason just because it ends up at least coming off as unreasonable, even if it's a reasonable request. I was just thinking about, I don't know, America seems, uh, the thing that stresses me out is that uh, no, no matter what demographic you want to look at, I feel like uh, America is filling up with more and more marginal people um, and everyone is feeling more marginalized by the day. I don't think COVID has particularly helped, you know, um, especially among like the, uh, the, the restaurant work set, um, which is certainly a lot of my peers. Um, but um, I feel like the, the, the one question that I feel like a lot of people are throwing at each other almost as an accusation, um, and you can see this from any side you want, is people saying, that's what you're getting mad about? Why aren't you getting mad about this? You know, um, it's, it's not even that, you know, and when, when, you get, when you get upset about, you know, someone having apparently the wrong priority, um, it's, it's easy to try and explain this to them by then downplaying their priority, but obviously that priority is quite serious to them, um, and they will not take that well either. Um, and so you just have this kind of escalatory spiral. Um, well, it's not just the spiral of uh, individuals. You... What's up? It's not just the spiral of individuals from the bottom up. Since the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act, there's also been the aspect of the law itself when it comes to lawyers, uh, you know, coming into various institutions and having the power of the law be used in such a way to, you know, have like affirmative action and other programs that would basically make it so that people do have to mind their P's and Q's, not even to the extent that they're being nice, but to the extent sure, that the law sure, would allow the weasels uh, that Jessica mentioned to abuse the power of the law. Right, but I mean, the the argument from the other side certainly has to do with, uh, shall we say, the problems with the law as well, you know? Yes, um, and I think their response would be, you know, well, that's what you care about? You know, just like I'm saying. Um, 
Well, I, I so, guess I guess it all comes out to what is oh, the gulag scenario that let's say people like Geo, you've seen a lot the past couple of days since the uh, tw Trump Twitter ban that there has been all this talk of which bunk in the gulag are you going to take, top bunk or bottom bunk? Ugh. So there is this idea going on, and we have Philip Daniel joining us as well. So there is this idea going on that people, Jessica, they are scared that there is going to be this transformation if it had not already happened behind the scenes, which I, I don't believe it. I, I agree with a lot of the things that you have to say about this, but I think that people in general are scared that the um, people who are going to wield a lot of power in the future will think that it is fine to put people who are more conservative into re-education camps and i am not saying that that's something that's going to happen i'm just conveying the frustration that people are feeling and the fear that they are feeling like now the establishment is going to show its true form and they're going to you know what i mean like that's that's Dude, the big concern i i hear what you're saying but i also think that that can be said i mean honestly that is a both sides thing there are people on the left and the right who all feel Definitely. They, they feel they're afraid of each other they're, and they, they're so afraid of each other and they create these scenarios in their heads where they're like, well, if, if I see, if I let up on any ground then that gives this person an opportunity to move on me and everyone's an oppressor. And, you know, you also just have to have more faith in people than that, that you have to hope that there are more reasonable people who can, you know, not let things get that far. Um, you know, if everyone's looking for an oppressor, are they really paying attention to who's doing the oppressing? Because well, I, w I want reasonable elites. I agree with you. I want reasonable people in general. But the most important thing to me is that we have reasonable elites, which to me, like I said in the beginning, it is kind of a uh, Schrodinger's cat because I don't know these elites. I know some elites. You know, we all know some elites, but I don't know as far as where the mind of a lot of people is. Have they taken the much more, let's say, militant? And look, it could have been the other side where we would have had elites that are like crypto Nazis or whatever. But right now, as it stands, what we do have is people who do proclaim a lot of these very woke talking points. And again, the concern here is that either they're doing it for the sake of appealing to that base, like I said before, that's the control that I talked about, or they're absolutely like true believers, you know, and they are going to lay out what people are going to follow in the future. And if they don't, then they're going to kicked off, going to be kicked off Uber, kicked off all of their platforms, you know, for something very innocuous, something that would be considered very innocuous by today's standards. So I don't see it as being sent to the gulags necessarily, but I do see a troubling trend with the kind of powers that a lot of these uh, companies have today, like Twitter and so on, as well as the ways that people are being taught in school, how the worldview is for a lot of these people. This is, again, why my hope is that a lot of it is cynicism. My am hope I gonna be, am I throwing a bomb here by saying, you know, we did just lock a bunch of people up in cages and really not do shit about that. I mean, and that was people on the left and the right and people who don't consider themselves on either side of it that sat by and didn't say shit. And there were kids sitting in cages and people dying and women getting raped in these institutions and that going unspoken about, really. I mean, you're still there. Yeah. And so... Well, there, there's slavery going on in Libya. There's uh, all kinds of horrible things that are going on in the world, some of which we participate in, some of which we don't. And I understand your point about that, but I guess the question is, where do we draw the line as far as like 
we have the citizens that are living in this country. And while I wish respect and health and wealth to all the great people living in the entire planet Earth, as far as saying, like, what are the legal systems that we have here that the American people have that'll make sure that they don't get, and I'm not talking about sent to the gulags, but I'm talking about that they don't get deplatformed for saying innocuous things in such a way that they lose their job, they lose their career, and they become unpersoned, where the only thing that they could get at that point is like welfare and government cheese, and that's it. And it's going to be stinky government cheese. They're going to press, they're, they're going to check the mark to make sure that it's stinky cheese, not, not the nice cheese. You know, like that's something that I don't want to happen. And again, the only reason why I would ever think that that would happen is because of what I see in colleges, what I see being taught in school, you know, a much more woke, militant, leftist approach, victim-oriented approach to, you know, it is kind of like a new segregation where people who are white would be more of the, you know, they would not have the same civil rights protections in comparison to people who are people of color if we're talking about all the legislations, things like that. So again, it's not one thing, it's all of these different things playing together. My hope again is that the people who are responsible elites understand that this would be a problem and they would make sure it doesn't happen. I hear you. And just, just so you know, I'm gonna have to roll. I have so much to say about what you just said, but I can't, I can't stay. And we also have a new friend here. Uh, no, um, well, I would love to have you back for a future uh, stream. To talk yeah, about a lot like of this. That. And I really, I've appreciated this conversation because there's so much more to all of this. I mean, I, I hope the one thing that people would take away from this is that, I mean, obviously, you know, no, there isn't a politician who's ever held office that's, you know, that's above reproach. And, and I mean, they're all humans, you know, they make mistakes and they're surrounded by people who enable them to continue making mistakes. And, you know, the extent to which they knew the mistakes they were making is what makes some of these conversations so hard. Um, you know, I've tried to keep up with some of the comments and I Oh, don't, don't forget the comments, forget the chat. No. They're, they're just doing their own thing. No, I know, but it's cool that these people have hung in here this long as well. But, um, to our new friend, I'm sorry, I'm not getting to stay, but I hope you have fun and, uh, I hope to be on again soon. I would love for you to be on again soon. And before you go, could I read the super chats just real quick right now? Here's what we have. I'm not sure if, uh, any of these, I think these are more general, but here we go real quick. Uh, okay. So. Uh, da, da, da. Okay, five hours ago, two hours. Okay, here we go. Super Iron Bob. A point I'm stealing from a socialist. In the U.S., the fundamental unit of governance is now the corporation and not the citizen when you examine the laws and regulations passed by Congress. And Dan, for $2, I'm going to have to replay this one as I've not been able to watch it live, but I'm glad to have found this channel through Frank Hassel. Shout out to Frank Hassel. You guys have been bringing top shelf content on a daily, <laughs> lately, hope Y'all have been having a good new year so far. Thank you very much and happy new year to you. And Spice said, $5 through Super Chat. Yes, sir. Right away, Admiral Lev. Here's your Super Chat. So there we go. Those are the Super Chats, and we really appreciate them. More Super Chats for the sake of Jessica. Jessica Deloach, you are a superstar. I would love for you to come back as soon as possible and keep going with us because these are the very important conversations, the deep conversations that are not being had on the mainstream. We are having here and we are solving we are solving all the mysteries of the universe. And we are so grateful for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. I hope to see you soon. Hope to see you soon. Take care. See you. Bye guys. Yeah. Bye bye. So guys, don't forget, we gotta subscribe. We gotta subscribe. Subscribe right now for the sake of Jessica, for the sake of Alex, for the sake of Philip. 
Philip, for the sake of Philip Daniels, who has just joined us right now, and for Gio Panacchietti. And don't forget to become not just subscribers, but become patrons. Patreon.com. What are we even doing? Patreon.com slash break the rules. Go there right now. You know you want to. $20 patrons are going to get incredibly beautiful magnets created by my father, Alexander Polyakov. Here they are. Oh, you could still see my head. Apparently, I have to move this layer up a little bit. I've been messing around with OBS over here. But uh, anyway, here, let me move this up so you see what the description is. Here just wanna, we go. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say to David Hival in, uh, in the live chat, I am flattered by the comparison to Edgar Verest. Although, as a composed i don't ever think i'll be as as great as he but or as others of his generation but you know i guess i am going for that that look you know having this wildly overgrown hair it's a it's a very beautiful hairstyle you got going and one more thing $30 patrons are going to get a print from Giovanni Panicchietti. Look at him work. My head is still floating over here, disembodied. But anyway, you see you see what's going on. You see you gotta become you gotta become a patron. And $50 patrons are gonna get not just the print. They are not just going to get the magnets, but they're going to get the magnets, the print, and also custom magnets, whatever you want. My father, Alexander, is going to design for you. Um, and not only that, but Jules P. Hamilton is going to color a beautiful figure from, I don't remember the name. What is it? What is it? That series with the Blue Marines and all Hammer that. Hammer you know? War? No, Warhammer. War. <laughs> 40K. Yes, yes. Warhammer for UK, for merry old England. Hello, governor. Hello, Gov. <laughs> anyway, he, we're going to get that. And you're also going to get, if you want to, you're going to get a custom. Uh, you're going to get, not a custom, you're going to get a printout of uh, any of the covers that my father designed. You'll know the ones. You see the art style. So any of the thumbnails that you see from BTR, look through them. If you want to print out of any of them, let me know. And it shall be done for the $50 patrons. And Geo, they are also going to get your beautiful Bob Ross style paintings as well if they mm -hmm. become $50 patrons. Look at all these things you're getting, and you are supporting this. We are building we are building the future right here, ladies and gentlemen, because we do have conversations with people that rarely happen otherwise, and this is what we are all fucking about, ladies and gentlemen. So I want to actually go back to trains now, because I think we've been talking too much about the internet. We understand what's going on there. Alex, our guest of honor, Alex Forrest, you have been... You have been a great proponent of train travel for a long time. When it comes to the coronavirus right now and other things, do you think that this has made people skittish about going back on the trains? And do you think there could be ways in the future, let's say, for trains to be done in a, you know, in the way that we described before, for it to be done in a much more, uh, a way that makes much more sense, but also in a way that maintains some kind of prestige maintain some kind of a you know like the japanese are very interested in the way that their trains look in the interior of the trains all these little things have to be paid attention to so is there a way that we can return to that kind of idea of the trains because i've looked around like america it's not as it, it, it's not it's not as good when you compare it to japan yeah i mean when you're talking on a national scale it's it's very difficult for me to say that america has a real system at all um amtrak really just barely counts um and and only even begins to seriously count in like one or two places um 
so you know it, I, I think it's possible just you got to bear in mind that for most of the country our starting place is zero um or or de facto zero um and in the parts of the country which do have you know some you know some surviving um and relatively built out railway systems um in some ways that makes it easier in other ways it makes it harder because there's already you know a, an establishment surrounding them that keeps them the way they are you know um the the phrase that comes to mind is uh for for every inefficiency there is a constituency um there's there's someone benefiting from everything that's wrong with it basically whether they you know that doesn't mean they necessarily want to stay that way um it just means that they don't have much incentive to correct it um but who but who are these someone's like uh, maybe we can't paint you know a direct picture but can you so, so the, i mean just i don't know um at, at the level of if you if you have uh like a ground level employee who is not in the habit of regularly cleaning the station then it would impinge upon their you know daily routine to have them start regularly cleaning the station and that's just you know kind of peanuts here um at, on a much bigger level um you know if we talk about say trying to pay for uh, railway expansion through tax increases you have everyone who would get that tax increase is going to think well hold on I, i'd rather if it's all the same to you i'd rather not pay that extra money um and so just you know to it's it's difficult to think of any way to change this that is going to uh make everyone involves uh life better you know presumably some people end up losing work um some people end up having to do more work um you know some things are no longer viable other things become possible um so yeah i don't know that doesn't mean we shouldn't try it just means that we should bear in mind that uh you know when you're trying to fix problems in a system you're going to run into exactly those constituencies that keep it up you know um we have a comment you know, from I, Iron, Iron Bob who says the candle maker begrudges the onset of the light bulb. Roughly, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, even even that's a little bit too simple because, you know, or, or actually, if anything, it's a bit too optimistic because the candle maker is at least doing something useful. Um, like you, you can have the problem of, um, I don't know, rentiership where, uh, you know, you're you're in the position of essentially rubber stamping any action that gets to be taken. You don't really contribute anything to that action besides giving it the permission to go ahead. Um, and if you try to say uh, streamline a budget by eliminating that kind of job. Well, crap, that's that's a bureaucrat now out on the street, not going to do. Um, so, you know, mm. um, it's, it's not always even um, productive work. Other times it is productive work, um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm getting really, really sidetracked. Um, I want to go back to something you had said earlier, but unfortunately, because I've gone sidetracked, I kind of lost track of it. No pun I like the train the train analogies here with the tracks getting sidetracked and well one one thing that I wanted to offer up while you're thinking about what that was is what about somebody mm -hmm. like Elon Musk because right now people have this idea which who knows maybe it's the right one where Elon Musk he's gonna save the internet he's gonna save uh, technology he's gonna you know make sure that the Chinese don't get there first with those bio implants and he'll figure out a way to not make people dependent on them you know I don't know people see him as a heroic figure that can do anything yeah. that, so, you know he so could do something with trains too. I don't know. Could, could he do something for trains? Um, he, you know, anything's possible. Of course, he could do something for trains. Um, I just wonder if, you know, with the with the 
approach that he's taking, is he going to deliver any sort of like fundamental improvement in, you know, at the end of the day, people getting around, you know? Um, I, I love trains as a mode, but, you know, they, they are ultimately a means to an end, which is transportation. Um, mm. you know, and, and making trains more better than transport people better. He, right. He well, so his, the, his, the boring oh, company with the underground, right, right. would that be like train? No, that, that was cars, but still, that's that's a way to make infrastructure better. Well, I'm not so sure because, you know, at that point, you're trying to build an entire new infrastructure from scratch, um, which is limited backwards compatibility with any other kinds of infrastructure, limited interoperability. Um, you're doing the entire thing underground, which, you know, um, I, I don't know how closely people are following the boring company, but I still am not aware of any significant cost savings they've offered in the tunnel drilling process for other tunnels of the same dimensions, you know? Um, generally, like, the the biggest uh, expense, you know, per mile of tunnel, as far as I know, is how wide it's going to be, like, how much how much earth are you trying to get out of the way in the first place? Um, well, would they be able to so, save money on uh, just the amount of people that can quickly travel from one place to another? Well, again, I'm not so sure. So now let's pretend that, you know, let's assume that, uh, that Musk finds a way to make this tunnel drilling process very, very cheap. And then he goes ahead and he completes building out an entire new infrastructure for, let's say, a demonstration city. Um, then, you know, does that system, if it's working exactly as intended, actually provide high capacity and high throughput? Because, you know, this is something that I feel a lot of people get wrong about trains. Um, you know, I, I hear it a lot because a lot of people are concerned with the trains as as a sort of uh, a way for poor people to get around, basically. They don't think of it as like a general transportation system. Um, and, you know, they, they'll fall back on the argument that, well, trains are cheap, you know. And I, I'll point out to them, they're, they're specifically cheap because you have a lot of people using them. If you have a train which doesn't have a lot of people using it, there's nothing cheap about it, you know. Um, which is why we, you know, this is why we call it mass transit. The emphasis is not on the transit part. You know, a, a car will also get you somewhere. The emphasis is on the mass part. And thank you. That reminds me of uh, what I was thinking yes. earlier with the COVID issue, right? Yes, yes. Did COVID make people more skittish of transit? Yeah, absolutely. They they said so, you know, again and again. Lots of people said it made them more uncomfortable. We're at a stay-at-home uh, order, you know, by I, the way, in Ontario. Mm. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, no, but you, Ontario, went to the, you went to the dentist, order. though. So yeah, but it's implemented on Thursday. But that's uh, I mean, dentist is okay. like essential shit. So like, come on. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and so this, this is the thing. You know, a lot of people certainly spoke up about how much more uncomfortable they are uh, about the health implications of taking transit. Um, but as far as as far as you know, does this mean people stop riding? You know, all discretionary travel, I would say, did disappear. What we saw um, and what was very striking looking at, you know, the ridership out here in my little corner of Western Mass compared to in Boston proper, um, what we saw was all the extraneous travel vanishing out of the system. And so you're left with only the trips that people really can't afford not to make. We saw precisely what percentage of our ridership is, you know, really, really needing that travel um, with an asterisk saying that, you know, they can only travel on the system that we give them. So if they really need a trip, that we don't provide, obviously they're not going to ride with us. Um, and you know what we found was that in these in these lower population density areas, the percentage of you know necessary travel was higher. Um, you know, Boston carries a lot more passengers than Western Mass, but more a higher percentage of Boston's passengers stopped riding during COVID than we saw out here. More more a larger share of our ridership really needs to continue to ride, basically. 
And then back to the health issue. Um, just like people's concerns about transit before COVID, um, they are not wholly illegitimate, but they are wildly exaggerated. Um, you know, before before COVID, was transit gross? I mean, yeah, easily. Anyone could take a photo of it. You know, you can see stains on seats or something or trash on the floor or whatever. Um, is the that times were amazing back in the day. It's, it's gross and, you know, it doesn't reflect well on the system, but it's not poisonous, you know? And likewise with, with COVID, you know, is it is it risky to be in a vehicle with a bunch of other people? Obviously, that's riskier than being alone. Um, does this mean you're going to catch COVID? Not really. Um, the well, I, I have an idea how to do it. Here's yeah, how you do we, it. We have to bring back the ta the tags were amazing. You look at New Ta York City nowadays. Oh, yeah. Where are the tags? I bet Where they're going to come back. I, I bet they're going to come back. No, no, I, I, I hate graffiti. I feel like graffiti is a response to trains that are boring. I've, I've no! 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 Yo, hold on, hold on. Very, very hot. It's hot the last take. true art. <laughs> hot take from Alex. I mean, Alex, you lived in Japan, and how did the Japanese go about their graffiti? Because there's this great book I got about oh, Japanese graffiti. They don't tend to graffiti trains, though, and if they do, they try to clean it up very quickly. Um, See, my my thought on, on train graffiti in America is just that, you know, I've complained that the New York City subway is just like these all gray cars, at least on the side view, which is, you know, how you see the train when you're standing on the platform. It's just a wall of gray. This is very boring to look at. You know, in Japan, the trains at least are very colorful. Uh, and I think, I think you know, people are less inclined to sort of paint a picture where they're not seeing a canvas. But the New York trains just no. look like canvases. And so what are you going to do? You got to decorate that, right? Plus, like, to uh, be a, a prolific tagger in places like, like in Japan and in Russia and other places where they buffered, like in Sweden, that means you are like a prolific tagger. You go like go out every day and you put in work because they like will buff it like literally that night in the port they will buff it. So yeah, it's kind of like wasting paint in some ways, but that's yeah, pretty and impressive. It, it depends on where you look. Um, you can you can definitely find corners of Tokyo where there's a lot of graffiti that stays oh, yeah. up for days at a time. Um, it's just those are usually. There are specifically areas which not a lot of people go wandering around in, which I guess could be said for a lot of, you know, dramatic graffiti installations but in America as well. I think like people they they don't really understand like how important train like transportation is in terms of like the global economy, especially in North America. Like here in Canada, like trains basically unite like the only way Canada in some ways could have existed the way it is is because of the the CPR and other railroad railroad systems. So yeah because it was the first time you could move like large amounts of freight and it's still like the most efficient way of doing it apart from like, um, like, you know, 18 wheeler, uh, the truck economy, but that's well, like, the most efficient way to move freight is by boat. And actually this yeah, is a yeah, funny but... point. Because this is why Japan does not have a very large freight rail. Uh, uh Nani, I can't see, uh, uh yeah, yeah. It's well, blending the, with the background. Yes, unfortunately it is here, but guess who was able to see it? The uh, viewers on YouTube are able to see it. Why? Ah. Because I am smart enough to put my OBS camera in place of this, so they are able to see it. Actually, let me see what happens if I... <laughs> what if I switch That's the it. cameras? What if I actually go over here, go into video, but this is going to disable the chat for a second, but let's see. Camlink 4K. Let's see what happens here. If I switch on... No, see, it's not going to show up, so let me switch it back. Whatever, whatever 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 we tried that it did not work but that's okay it was a worthy it was a worthy attempt back to the chat over here but anyway graffiti japan great book it's uh i don't know if you have this book but wong carway superfan xoxoxo great friend of the show he has this book and once again for all the people who did not subscribe yet don't forget to subscribe 
I have this chicken. You could probably see, don't look at this chicken. Well, guess what? I have another chicken. I have the chicken right over here. Look at this chicken. <laughs> this, is, this is a chicken that I have failed to eat because I was so engaged in the uh, conversation that we were having. But I am going to eat this chicken. I don't think I need to put it in the microwave. I think it is good enough to eat right now. And I also want to bring things over to Philip Daniel. Philip, you have not said a single goddamn thing this entire time. Mm -hmm. So it's about time you say something. Do you want to make a comment about the internet? discussion that we had with jessica about trains it is your you are the king right now we bow down to you oh. and all the chickens of the world bow down to you when they go cluck 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 so philip take it away oh, um i i did say see ya very quietly to jessica when she left or just before she left um so i did have two words um I was going to say before she left, if I'd had an opportunity, that um, there, there's, a, there's a ubiquitous and an ubiquitous human foible, and that is that we tend to assign, and this, may, and this isn't necessarily a foible, it served us well in, in our thousands of years of evolution as hunter-gatherers, you know, in tribal units that we tend to assign moral authority to, well, to ourselves as individuals, to groups to which we belong, whether these groups are kinship groups or, or affiliative groups that are more artificial in nature, we tend to assign moral authority. And so we imagine that not only, of course, do we imagine that all the causes for which we fight are good causes. I mean, this may sound trite, but we assign moral authority to ourselves. And we forget, as Solzhenitsyn said, the line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. Yes, every human heart. I know the those inclined to wokeness, some of them will say, well, um, different uh, intersections of different groups have different capacities, which is actually kind of essentialist. It's no longer construct. It's no longer constructionist. It's essentialist at that point. But no, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And you know, of course, we we are inclined. We are inclined to to forget this. We forget it. You know, particularly when 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 we coalesce into mobs. These mobs can be online mobs. They can be meat space mobs. Doesn't matter. We tend to forget this. And um, then of course, there's the fact that there's a toxic brew of victimhood, of, of a feeling that one is victimized or marginalized, whether this is real or imagined, and a high sense of self-esteem or pride in one's group. Those two together have been observed to set the stage for atrocities later on. I think that's fairly obvious, but a recent example would be 1994, the genocide of Tutsis by Hutus, the genocide of privileged Tutsis by marginalized Hutus. And I know it's easy to uh, blame the Belgians for that, but really it goes deeper than that. Um, and uh, but but this is all fairly tried and obvious, I would think. And and I don't think a swile guest would disagree with any of that necessarily. Certainly she and I would have and, yeah. and do have plenty to disagree with politically. Yeah, but I, but 
I, I don't think that she would disagree with those. Uh, I, I would love for her to come back uh, to talk with you about this at a later stream. But uh, the one thing that I think, and look, I don't blame anybody because in this kind of position, it's what do you even say? Because when it comes to the idea that I was proposing, which I think is a pretty valid one, that look, like you are going to have all these elements that are going to get out of control. So it makes sense that not like a puppeteer with strings, but that you would do everything in your power to be able to placate and appeal to them to get votes, to have them be useful for other reasons, you know, like, and for them not to go to somebody else. So like the Democratic Party and the ultra left, like the BLM uh, protesting, rioting, all that kind of stuff, like people see that together. It's different, though. Like, here's the thing. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. So I was glad that Jessica was able to talk about it to the extent that she did. My whole thing, though, is I would not hold back myself from talking about all of this stuff because i think that the more you do talk about it to whichever extent the more people who let's say may be opposed to it can kind of figure out you know what it's not a matter at least right now it's not a matter maybe of this conspiracy of these people you know uh using the far left and then gaining control over everybody and then putting us in gulags but it may be a matter of just ordinary people dealing with the cards that they've been dealt here, seeing that it does make sense to restrain them and to keep them within our circle of influence and to kind of appease them and do all these things to make them feel happy. You know, like, what is the alternative here? Like, that, that yeah, may be your way of looking at it. that's the thing. It's like, but that's the debate. What is Where is the line between an organic movement start and something that is uh, appropriated for certain influences begin, right? Like, that's always going to be the debate and i don't know it's um i think like i don't know as much as i don't want to black pill i think we're going to see more of the same but a lot of critical issues in our society uh aren't talked about because there just isn't enough attention or there's just and again the attention economy is sort of like um what does bard call it the netocrat versus the consumeritariat the consumeritariat has won it is the consumer of attention and, and content and so forth that prevails. And when you can not just manufacture um, attention or concern, but also weaponize people's span, uh, not just span of attention, but also their capacity for boredom, I feel is an often overlooked tool. When you make something boring or you make something overplayed, that's just as effective of burying certain issues and accentuating other ones than anything else so i don't know i'm just i mean that's what happened with the whole like dumb epstein joke isn't it where people turn that epstein yeah. stuff into a really boring joke and then people's like, oh yeah yeah just forget about it it's just a boring joke it's just a me yeah that's forget a good about example. it forget about the pedophiles running the world forget about it <laughs> forget well, about well, G- well, Gio, the way that you're talking about it, though, and I know that you don't do it, to, or maybe you do, I don't know, what the organic movement, when you said organic movement, you emphasized it, it seemed to me as if that's a better alternative as opposed to it being controlled. My whole thing is I th- see three things here. Number one, an organic movement. Number two, an organic movement that's being controlled. And number three, an organic movement that's being controlled by another government but may- or maybe, that, that goes insane and just yeah, but maybe swallows the, up the establishment. But maybe even the categories of organic and controlled aren't arriving at the picture of how we, you know, describe what is power, who has power in the modern world. Maybe those are limiting in terms of what we're getting at. 
Whereas a more nuanced position would be that it goes beyond like just being controlled or organic, but rather um, the genealogies of these different movements obviously have their own unique histories and their own unique reasons for being. It's just that, um, you know, there, there are certain things that have come that have arisen within, I would say, like largely the Western psyche from like the enlightenment onwards that you can't just like, you basically have to question the assumptions that people hold to just be reality or facts of the matter. Then, um, than just like you know just saying like difference of uh, politics or whatnot it goes beyond that it goes beyond even to like i would say people's inherent dispositions on a more intangible metaphysical level determines like why they believe what they believe and why is it that certain forms or certain narratives are so dominant and you could you know call that well it's because of late capitalism because of instrumental reason and so forth these are all sort of like valid categories or it's because i don't know the satanic uh, pedophile demon goblins that control the world like you know what i mean like it's it depends it seems that different people are arriving at the same thing it's just that um it, it goes beyond like whether you know here's this group that's being controlled and so forth it's it's i don't know it's something something else is going on what that something else is is uh the topic of uh you know millions mm. of acres of trees that are cut down to write books and uh you know thousands still, of gallons of ink spilled on this topic right sure but there is still an important distinction that i think none of us have been able to get to a conclusion on which is and maybe it's a mix of both but there would still be one that's more dominant over the other which is when you have a group of students that's going to yale that's becoming bonesmen you know they go into skull and bones whatever and they are people who are following in the legacy of their fathers and forefathers mm. who have been in the intelligence apparatus of this country. And when they start using uh, these new pronouns and when they start talking about, you know, cisgendered and all of these things, like, are they putting on an act or are they for real? And if they are for real, then what does that say about the decisions they are going to make later on? Are they going to be like the hippies turned into, uh, you know, the uh, yuppies of the 80s and do a complete 180, you know, like that Winston Churchill quote about, like, you know, if you're not, if you're young and uh, conservative, you have no heart. If you're uh, old and liberal, you have no brain. So could it be a similar thing would happen to all the subsequent generations or... Have yeah, but those are just be... very old yeah. power structures grafting themselves onto newer forms of, uh, you know, popular discourse. Sure, That's but when they're grafting, happened, right? but when they're grafting them onto these new forms, does it stop at the grafting where there's still an understanding that, like, you know, of course, you know, these conservatives are Nazis. You know, of course, we're not going to be implementing, you know, all these race-based uh, laws. You know, like, is there still an understanding of certain reality here where, you know, like, we talk with this beautiful flowery language to the leftists in order to appeal to them, and otherwise we will continue business as usual. Maybe some people are going to say a pronoun or two nowadays, but it's still going to be okay. It's still going to be like, we're going to keep the ship together. You, you know what I yeah, mean? Like, as opposed to... But that's the thing. It's It goes to the core assumptions of um, what determines 
sovereignty, like who, who determines these exceptions, but also what is justice and what is our notion of uh, why are certain things an inherent good? Why is it that affirming someone's subjective experience in life an inherent good as opposed to some other metric? Why is it that equality is an inherent good? These are fundamental questions that get overlooked because for so long there's almost a religious devotion to certain assumptions about what is justice and fairness and and you know then it, this is like again why do you think we should you know as much as he's cringe or whatever and he is very cringe but you should read people like uh john rawls that that you know why do you th that's like basically what liberals think nowadays in terms of if you had a veil of ignorance then of course people would value equality and so forth when you know maybe throughout human history that's not the case so it goes beyond just like okay these people are trying to police our language it's more so what are the assumptions that lead to a certain policing of language to begin with and why is it that certain um certain background ideas get taken up into the consciousness of like you know whatever you want to call it woke activism or so forth like what has led to that and of course you know you have like very limited responses by people like conservatives that think i don't know it's like some cultural marxism thing it's it's beyond like just i don't know these german and french academics came to america and just like fuck shit up like it's you know what i mean like that's too simplistic of an analysis it's more well, what, what year did they come to america well, uh, approximately, I would, I would assume after a lot of them came after the war, right? Uh, but Many came in the 1930s. Yeah, the yeah, exodus yeah. of intellectuals from first Germany, then Austria. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I was saying before, I kind of put the um, label of communist agitators on such people as Albert Einstein. And uh, of course, Are you calling uh, Albert Einstein communist. Yes. He had a lot of communist theory of relativity was communist, and he and he was well, also having sex with a communist spy. He was certainly a left winger, but I think were he alive today, he'd probably be called a reactionary. And there have I been think he was a posthumous Well, there would there, no, no. He was the Neil Tyson of his day. That's what yeah. I heard from people that he was like. There was other people that came before him that were often. Uh, he was the original yeah, but, but autist. He, he was the but original he autist. A, but he yeah, but all, all great scientists were autists. I know. I'm being yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I he think had an we share should... with a communist spy, and I don't want to take that lightly. You know, that is. I don't. That I don't know what security protocol. Yeah, but again, but that's the th that's the whole point, love. That's again, that's like um, what what Alex was trying to say. Like you know, this this person was the glow in the dark and the communist spy. Like the glow in the darks don't even have to uh, necessarily exist. It's just the the creation of an apparatus of power mm. that is a projection of like, okay, they're a glow in the dark, so therefore you are being corralled into certain positions, and you know you know what I mean. It's it's like that's the again the basic panopticon idea. There doesn't necessarily have to be you know spies or glow in the darks. It's just that the assumption of controlled space or own space is enough to make people act in certain ways on under like a, a presumption of surveillance. So I don't know what I'm getting at with that, but you know I'm just I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I know exactly what you're getting at. It's to me still like sorry. Mm. 
Everybody subscribe for the sake of me eating this delicious chicken. It's cold, but it's still really good. You know, that means that this is a good bird. It lived a good life, and now it's inside of my stomach, and I think it's going to, you know, the spirit is going to fill me up with the chicken spirit. And Don't look at this chicken. Don't look at the chicken left. I, I swear, every time I see that, I'm just like, I, I always lose. I'm always like focusing on it. Good, but, good. But the point that I'm getting to here is, to me, it's kind of like that Buddhism thing about the arrow. You know, like Buddha doesn't care about where the arrow came from, you know, and why it's lodged in this guy's stomach. It's more about how do we get the arrow out. But I do agree that it is important to look and see how exactly these ideas came about. But in terms of practicality here, like what are what are we really doing here? What are we really doing? To me, we are trying to see if we can get together with people who are within the quote-unquote elites and be able to guide in such a way that at least there will be communities out there that would be focused on growth and prosperity and that people would be able to assist in the growth of those communities should the system that we currently have in this country not be as stable for a while. And if it's stable, that's even better. That means that the communities have that much more of a chance of uh, growing. And this is both for the online communities as well as people just living living in the, uh, towns and cities. Alex? So, yeah, quick quick thought is just, um, I think I think probably, probably for, for, I don't know, for most people's prospects, peace is definitely a better option um, than than anarchy or mayhem. Um, but but as far as new things growing, um, something to something to bear in mind. Uh, I, I want to throw like a Nassim Taleb tagline on this, although I'm not sure he ever actually said as much. Um, is that conditions of peace and conditions of chaos both cause certain things to grow? Um, and you know the whether, whether or not those things that are flourishing under those circumstances. Uh, you know, in, in conditions of peace, fragile things flourish, and in conditions of chaos, anti-fragile things flourish, right? Those, those things that are flourishing are not necessarily good or bad in themselves. Um, they might be new or, or old. Um, you know, if, if something causes the church to flourish, I would say it's something, having, it's, it's something old that is flourishing. Um, if something causes a completely new movement to flourish, I'd say it's causing something new to flourish. Um, only that... Uh, there, there are really, really good reasons why we should aim for aim for peace. All right, just that um, things things can grow anyway. <laughs> things things can grow under just about any circumstances. You know, think think about like you know a, a cave ecosystem producing blind fish. Right, you're gonna get whatever your ecosystem is producing, um, or you're gonna get more of that. You know. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these are um, like ancient forces that are coming into newer light it's not right you might say you might say things that flourish under peace specifically are things which don't like to be challenged mm -hmm. um because in peace they are not being challenged um and so you know an organization that doesn't want to be challenged could presumably do a lot of groundwork and a lot of expansion in a time of peace um but in chaos uh things that benefit from being challenged tend to keep doing better do so you think um, peace is similar to like stubbornness in a way like that's what it sounds like am i wrong or I, I, I can see a parallel there. The word that I prefer to use is, uh, and please don't take this the wrong way, guys, but the word that I prefer to okay. use is stagnation. Um, yeah, that's what was on my mind. Okay. Like, you know, yeah. How can I put this? So, so to, put this, to put this on like a, on a leftist perspective, right? Um, you might say there was peace in the South before the Civil War. This does not necessarily mean that, that peace was something that people in the South wanted to continue. 
um, especially certain people in the South, right? Um, so there are some opportunities which only present themselves through war. Um, and if you, I guess it depends on what your problem is, right? If your problem is the absence of an organization that you think would be good, um, then, you know, presumably you can build that organization in peacetime. Um, and I think that is, that's what I want, you know, is certainly you don't get a very complicated technical marvel like a railway system in a state of constant civil war. That doesn't work. Um, you do need peace for, for good railways. Um, but, but, but you also um, need the, the impetus for people to do it organization which just isn't going anywhere then in that case what you want is probably not peace because peace will just keep it around but that's uh, there was this great um youtuber you could look him up his name is um what's his name Ethan dark Ralph. h <laughs> no dark h theorist he has this series of videos on what he calls the brown age so there's the dark ages and then there's a renaissance but that's more uh, what is neglected is often the liminal space between a dark age period or a period of collapsing chaos and a period of uh, renewal. So what he calls our period is a brown age, meaning that there is going to be a certain re-territorialization of powers and infrastructure, and there will be a relative um, period of stability but also stagnation and also um any sort of innovative thought will be stifled and will be uh not just like not just suppressed actively but there will be very nuanced ways of suppression so for example uh spandrel he had this article that came out recently about a few, i think a day ago about the future of social media so he used an example of that one social media company in china that was free for a bit but then the government got involved what happened was all the creative, innovative people that were criticizing the government. I think it was called Quibo or something. I forget. Oh, but, um, Weibo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weibo. I, I read the piece. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then what happened was all those people sort of left and they dark forested themselves, meaning they retreated to like private chat rooms and so forth that were encrypted so the government didn't get up. But they had no relative power on a huge social media platform. So Dark Age Theorist theorizes that we're entering a brown age of stagnation and peace, but peace at the cost of any sort of innovation. So there will be probably, I don't know if there are people that are predicting insurrectionism is going to be on the rise and it'll be like, imagine like Sarajevo or like the troubles in North Ireland, but now all across America. I don't know if that's a possibility. I mean, anything's possible, but what would be, in my opinion, you know, to critique Alex a bit. Well, my opinion would be that would be worse would be peace at the cost of sort of like actually changing the system or if like the current yeah. system finds a way to exist in perpetuity. But what happened is what Dark Age Theorist says is that when there's periods of collapse, there's also periods of innovation that come about from a dramatic change of the social order. But the downside is that, you yeah. know, millions of people die and there's fucking starvation and like, critical infrastructure gets knocked out and the people that uh i personally don't think i think that there's enough backlog and there's enough literature to where uh it won't be like um what people stereotypically think of as the dark ages where all knowledge is lost i do think that a lot of infrastructure could be retained but if like a massive like for example if the power grid goes down because of a solar flare 
uh, then what would happen would be like there would be not like there wouldn't be enough Colton. People say there's not enough Colton to like rebuild the computers or whatever. But I feel that there's enough know-how where like even even during periods of the Dark Ages, there was people that had knowledge that were mostly confined to monasteries. That it wasn't as like this dramatic. Um, there was a dramatic decline, but it wasn't like what people think that people like all of a sudden went back to like I don't know like agrarian primitive uh social structures but certainly i i do see like decline for us would look different it would look like almost like a stability in some ways it would look like you oh know, absolutely this this actually so two things because you yeah i mean you you gave me like 20 things that i would love to talk yeah, about sorry guess, sorry alex i'm sorry yeah. it. No, no, it, was, it was great i'm glad i'm glad you went off for a minute um <laughs> I, I, yeah, usually, I, yeah. I do appreciate that but i guess if i had to narrow it down to just the two things that i'm thinking of um one is kind of the idea that, uh, um, was it anyone? The, the trick to studying history is to find out which situation is actually comparable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's the, no two collapses were ever created the same. Um, yeah, and you exactly. know, obviously, you know, this is, I, I'm not surprised that a lot of people turn to Rome for their go to example. It's, you know, kind of the obvious one, right? We think about Rome, we think about how it was a republic and then it turned into an empire and then it fell and then everyone back to the dark ages, right? Um, but for me, the, the specific kind of stagnation that I think is both likely and concerning for the USA would be, it'd be much better compared to the Ming dynasty in China, you know, yeah, that's a, right. yeah. looks like, you know, worldwide power. Um, but what it is marked by is, you know, resting on laurels, just, you know, letting the centuries go by and never thinking that it's even possible that you could be falling behind the people in the country that you never go and see, you know, until way later it's way too late you know for the case of the ming they did not get overrun by europeans they got overrun by manchus um mm -hmm. so yeah. good job guys by the you steep people less technologically advanced than you were great job um i think but no that was, that was one the other one was just um concerning the fall of the roman empire uh awesome book by henri Pirenne about this he's a belgian dude writing in the early 20th century um but his his thesis is that the arrival of the barbarians in the roman empire was basically just a transition of like, you know, ruling class. There weren't any substantial economic changes. There wasn't any considerable uh, return to poverty and, you know, survival off the countryside yet. But the, that dark age did hit and it hit very hard right around the time um, that the rise of the Umayyads cut off Europe from its Middle Eastern trade. Yeah, and suddenly, was, you know, without the yeah. value luxury good trade that they had going, there wasn't a lot of financial incentive to carry goods any kind of distance at all. And so people turned more and more to living off the land right around them. Um, and you know what this looked like in political terms was the establishment of feudalism. Um, and in economic terms, this meant grinding poverty, um, like people in, in rural France turning to eating grass. Um, also, one, one more tiny thing. A lot of people think of the Dark Ages and they think of like the 1100s. This is incorrect. You want to go at least at least 300 years before that. Um, you know, the, the Dark Ages specifically, I'm thinking of between like the 600s and about the year 1000. That's the period I'm talking about. So the Byzantine so, Empire was still yeah. around during that time and Constantinople fell at uh, uh, the 1400... 1453. Yeah, 1453. So before that, if you were, let's say, a rich 
Roman uh, patrician family living back during the age of uh, Julius Caesar. You could theoretically just continue living the good life throughout they did, all actually. these centuries. That was the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who counted did live a life of luxury. It was all the people who didn't count, who just, you know, had it worse and worse and worse for like 400 years in a sequence. Mm -hmm. Probably but longer, the... although I think that some people benefited, you know, to some extent, the common man benefited from the collapse of Roman institutions during the invasions. Um, but the Romans sometimes directly by looting. That was another mm. thing. Yeah. Oh, right, right, exactly, exactly. That's what I mean. You know, they, their benefits are not necessarily to their long-term advantage, but at least there's a reason that they were kind of okay with it at that point, you know? But the um, Romans themselves, like, uh, they, as far as citizenship goes, they were giving it out towards the end of the, uh, at, at least the end of the uh, Western Roman Empire. They were giving it out to more and more and more people, and they were also yeah. uh, shortchanging yeah, their currency. During the Republic phase, haven't they? I mean, this, yeah, this is kind of like, was... this, is where how, this is where we got, like, um, the... <sighs> It's been a while. I've got my I've got my book on Rome somewhere around here. Um, what is the best yeah, book on Rome, by the way, for for, for a recommendation the to the empire? Um, you know, the, giving, what is the best giving oh, any things like that? I was just wondering, what is the best book people can read on Rome that you would personally recommend, Alex? For me, yeah. um, I I don't think I have a best book to recommend. The one that I read like most recently um was a book called is the title was just rome um and it was by by i think a russian guy he had a complicated name and i can't remember it um but personally if you want to read a book about rome read Henri Piren and read don't focus on rome focus on rome's decline and the transition to the middle ages that's the interesting part that's the you know so that, that's my message. Instead of recommending a book on Rome, I'm going to say, don't read about Rome. Read about the transition from Rome to the European high Specifically, the book Muhammad and, and Charlemagne, right? Yes. Yeah. Ah, not, not Muhammad and Charlemagne. Oh, no. But that's another of his, yeah. And yes. that, that, that's the same theory yeah. that he goes over. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. Muhammad and Charlemagne would probably do as well. Is there a number uh, you would recommend reading these in? Which one would you read first and second? Well, I haven't read Muhammad and Charlemagne, but these are the two Piran books that I've got. I've got Medieval Cities, and I've got The Economic and Social History of Medieval Europe. Um, these are both great. Uh, I recommend them to anyone. Um, and which one talks about Rome's transition? Um, medieval Cities. Medieval Cities is kind of the simpler, more narrative-driven account, whereas the one with the longer title is going to be the more academic one. Um, so, like, you know... The economic and social history, this one here, um, smaller print, much more extensive citations, um, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. I was a big fan of that series, Rome, on HBO, and I uh, had a huge crush on uh, Polly Walker, who uh, played uh, Atia. I don't know if you guys remember uh, that HBO series, but it was, it was really I, good. I never watched it. It I really, really want to bring up that. something that someone mentioned in chat here because I find this uh, Goma. We're rapidly, <laughs> we're heading rapidly, Goma, Goma. Uh, we're rapidly heading to a state where nearly everyone in the USA, and I'd also consider a lot of the first world, uh, lives a middle class like life. The problems people deal with will be psychosocial and just a general like psychological. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I feel like that. Yeah, you're saying that the problems uh, are designed to this. To basically disguise like the poverty that people are going to face which is true i mean material mm -hmm. conditions are always it seems that like the 
the social political machine is like specifically designed to ignore people's like material reality. But I don't know. It's just like that I New find Yorker it... cover with that lady sitting in front of the laptop and there's like junk everywhere. No, well, room. she's like the earth. She's like at the upper crust, whereas wow. like people in like the inner cities are going to or like people in the heartland that are, you know, dying of fentanyl overdoses. Like that's that's different than someone who yeah. like has a trust fund going to like NYU uh drinking chardonnay during her zoom class and true that's... true but, do you but remember... yeah i mean yeah i mean I, I love the edit of that one where it was the goofy meme like damn bitch you live like this <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the max max meme and uh, as far as uh you guys remember uh, that movie uh and real quick by the way i know this is this is real life horned posting but check out the nude scene of polly walker in rome it's in the very first episode she has such an incredible body my god she oh has the God. body of an angel. I mean, what I wouldn't give to... Okay, I'm not going to get into horn posting right now, but what I wanted to go back to was Gangs of New York with Leonardo DiCaprio, directed by Scorsese. In the beginning of that movie, you had that street fight between the um, uh, the Irish uh, group, you know, the Catholics, and the Protestants, the natives. And the buildings that they were inhabiting, it almost You know, BAP like has a theory about that ethnic conflict there that's pretty... I'm not going to get into it, but... Uh... His I, recent like episode, he's got later a on. pretty interesting theory about what, why these ethnic riots happened and who staged, not staged them, but like who provoked a lot of them. But that's neither here nor there. Um, no, that's interesting. Right. But as far as the caves go, like, I don't know if you guys saw that movie. Who here has seen Gangs of New York? Yeah. No. I, yeah, yeah. I have not. Okay, well, I recommend that. I'm not going to spoil anything, but um, in the beginning oh, of that it's movie... It's so okay. many times. Okay. I really need to <laughs> In the beginning of that movie, the people were stepping out of what looked like a cave you didn't even know that they were living in in, in the city because it looked like every, everything was just like dirty and grimy and like underground and so i wonder like the facades that we have and this actually does go back to infrastructure as a matter of fact to uh, round round this back to infrastructure here what exactly holds us to the infrastructure now not of trains but of the actual cities and towns and buildings where people don't live like they live in caves, where people actually live in these structural buildings as opposed to these shanty towns that can fall apart at any moment. Like you see, for example, in the third world, there are lots of these buildings that just aren't held together well at all. But then again, those are like climates that are, you know, hotter, so maybe it's not that much of a problem in comparison. But still, it's like, how much does it take to hold all of this together and when all of this is not held together in a big city like New York, like when that goes into, uh, you know, escape from New York mode. And I don't know how many people saw that movie, but <laughs> what exactly would the life be like for a lot of these people then who, you know, were once like these, you know, lower middle class New Yorkers who are now stuck in this labyrinth. And like, I feel like it may be something like uh, in Hong Kong, they had that city that they demolished. Uh, what was it called? Um, oh, yeah. well, Hong Kong's fucked. Yeah. Like uh, I've seen a few things of Hong Kong where it's like people are trapped in these like really like small, like the world's smallest houses. That's fucked. Yeah. But a lot of yeah. people, even though it's like Hong Kong's like a really exaggeration, like a lot of people are just going to be the inter This is why I think a lot of this internet stuff is really interesting. Is because because of the way the internet works and like technology and media, people can like basically engross themselves into fantasy, and then it's just like the real world doesn't matter. And this is like basically, I don't know, it's, a lot of this stuff's very confusing to me. And that's another thing I wanted to mention, like censorship and the internet message. 
like if we have to think of television as having a message, well, this is sounding so schizo person, but if we have to think about television, which is ages, we kind of figured out that a lot of television's message is based upon like looks and like fairly artificial, but like primal kind of stuff. What is the internet's fucking message? Because see, I have no fucking clue. And like, it's all over the place. I don't know. This is where I'm trying to get like a point here. But it's just like yeah. the way censorship works, right? New is that China. censorship doesn't do fucking anything to like it doesn't prevent anything, it doesn't gain anything. All it does is add fucking mess. And I'm fucking confused. Uh, I was gonna I had a point and then I just the internet. Well look for example, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about it because again YouTube may probably censor it, but the discussion of the fairness of you know what, I'll call it the hot dog eating contest. You know, like if that the, the hot national dog... hot dog eating contest uh, Exactly well, like that if happened. That, <laughs> if that was opened if that was opened up to oh, the public to discuss it would be a pressure relief valve. But since YouTube decided to censor that, it's just like one more thing being added on top of the shit pile. Well, because it's an article of faith, because you're questioning the very foundations of American... The hot dog, the hot dog system. American the hot, hot dog factory. eating contest system itself, democracy. So <laughs> America has destabilized governments how many times around the world, but yet when it comes at, to home... Well, you have the rhetoric, right, that these places are sacred institutions and if we you know when it comes to nation states it's often the case that yes architecture uh from the farthest regions of the middle east with cigarettes to the sort of roman citadels they are sacred spaces but can we really say that in the sort of modern context of hyper rationalism and and uh mm -hmm. you know the utmost corruption and desacralization mm -hmm. of every institution that's my contention so these people that want to say that these are sacred institutions to the national hot dog eating contest it's kind of uh <laughs> but it was you and you and Philip, you and Alex I, had a I just want to point in the chat i just want to point out i wanted to i just want to point out that the sacredness is well the sacredness is contingent it is it rests upon the particular context of course because remember that the capital was uh, constructed with unfree labor. Therefore, the descendants of those that constructed the capital would have the right to do certain things. Whereas mm -hmm. those that Pelosi, um, those um, that Pelosi in recent comments associated with a certain social construct that is considered an eldritch horror, um, because their ancestors did not build the capital, uh, they lack that uh, that inherent right. Hmm. Well, yeah, but that was like, the same. Exactly, I'm, I'm dancing but, around the point, yeah. but you know. No, but, but this, this is this... all political language because it's like yes. a brutal institution. Like you know, I, I gotta mention it that you mention it. Wonder show the wonder shows in clip of the song uh, slaves built the pyramids slaves built the <laughs> remember Goshen. My... yeah Goshen, should... but not the pyramids mm. yeah um slaves built the parthenon um yeah so that, slaves, that's this is your song bill angkor wat actually the uh, great temple and palace complex of angkor and Cambodia was, yeah. was built by was actually built by child slaves yeah uh, not thousand years ago but, but of more course like, slave, more like angkor what different... more like angkor what they Ankar did what? Oh. It was. Or, they did yeah. what? what? The, what? 
Kamara Kamai would actually raid the hill tribes. Uh, they they definitely had a proto-racialist, you know. Really? Even back then? No, because so. slavery in the ancient world was a different sort of, uh, it wasn't explicitly, but in certain parts of the world, it kind of was explicitly yes. racialized. Yeah. Yes. Holy crap. Particularly the Zanja Bellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, but definitely you guys. the Spaniards. But you guys were talking about in the chat, um, you were talking about um, uh, so how in the ninth century, Abisad Caliphate two ethnic ten. Yeah, you guys, you and Alex go off because you, you were saying <laughs> some <good> stuff. So, <laughs> so actually, Joe, you had me thinking about something a minute ago. Um, so, uh, it, it sounded as though you were kind of asking the question, you know, can can we even talk about like the idea of a sacred space in such a? I love that cat, by the way. Yes. When I can see, when I can see a space, um, he's getting caught by the green screen for a bit. Um, but uh, you know, can that exist in a state that's kind of like explicitly rational um, and and secular? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that, yeah. The thing that I'm thinking about that. It's actually this. So this goes to an idea that I have that, you know, there's there's that the separation of church and state is fundamentally impossible because they are the same thing. Um, yes, and yeah. if, you, if you have a state which is, you know, like officially secular, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own sort of narrative and its own sacred spaces and things like that. It just means, you know, that A, it won't accept any others, which is typical for any state, really. Um, you know, look at how the Catholic missionaries fared in Japan, for example, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Were the Japanese edgelord atheists? I mean, maybe some of the Buddhists were, but by and large, they're just like, hey, this is a this is a foreign worldview, which is going to undermine our local authority. Um, and so, you know, in the case of the secular and rational state, you know, yeah, of course it can have sacred spaces. It's a government. So governments are, you know, like, it's a fundamentally sacred role. Um but that also means that for that exact reason, they will not be very tolerant of any other sacred narratives, which would, you know, rob them of legitimacy and embolden uh, dissenters, you know? Right. Yes. We're more bug posting. Although I think his response has kind of been not on the on the ball. Just two recent articles. I, haven't, I don't know. I, fe well, I feel well, like Eli, we've Eli matured Schiff enough. criticizing it. Yeah, I feel like we've matured enough to criticize Mold Bug. I mean, oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it's true. I, I do. I, I think that even behind the rationality um, of the modern, uh, well, not just the modern world, but also we would say like America being founded upon certain principles of the Scottish and French Enlightenment and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think that even within that, there's still. Um, a bounding up of mythos and, and instrumental reason. So again, this is like Theodore Adorno talking about how even in the ancient world, there was still instrumental reason. It was like, you know, uh, for example, Odysseus tricking the Cyclops. By the way, Owen Cyclops coming in February. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Heavens, yeah. Um, tricking the Cyclops by saying that, you know, when he poked his eye out, he said, I'm nobody. So then the Cyclops goes back to the, what was it? The Titans or the, the, the Pantheon is like, who did this to you? He's like, nobody did this, nobody, because he was fucking yeah. stupid. So uh, it was kind right, of right. people running around giving using the same label that the guy who stuck him in the eye used. Yeah, like, yeah. What, do you, what do you mean by Scottish Enlightenment? I've not heard this term before. Scottish Enlightenment. Like, like ba basic, like um, Adam Smith. Uh, who was the other economist? Um, was Ricardo wasn't Scottish? He was. Uh, but yeah, they they mean the Scottish and and. 
British Enlightenment as like basically like utilitarianism and uh, like empiricism from David Hume. Ah, I got you. I got you. Yeah. 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 yeah so, oh, so it's been it's been a long time since I've looked into it. But uh, for people who are not in the know, um, the role of Scotsmen in both the Enlightenment and especially in the Industrial Revolution is like way understated. Yeah. Um, they mm-hmm. they they are. Yeah, you know, if you want to talk about disproportional representation, those guys are punching wildly above their actual yeah. like number. Um, my favorite, my favorite tiny example of this, and like I said, it's been years since I was actually reading about this stuff, so it's so I'm pretty rusty. Um, but my favorite example is that it was a it was a Scottish engineer who invented the color mauve. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he's fucking around with industrial byproducts, and uh, you know, then he's like, oh, well, this actually makes a really nice color, and look, I can just get it on fabric, easy peasy. And so he called it mauve. I forget why. Um, and yeah. Um, and by the way, mauve is a dirty pink. A, a, lot of, a lot of inventors, scientists, tinkers, and uh, and thinkers um, ended up being Scotsmen. It's kind of wild. Yeah. They're also was- the first middle class um, skilled labor force. Like here in Canada, um, the British class system was retained up until very recently. And so, for example, you would have great building projects like the CPR. And like, uh, which is the Canadian Pacific Railway. And uh, even here near where I live, not to talk to myself, but near where I live with the the Ontario, uh, the Niagara um, canal system, you had a mm. hierarchy where the British lords, they were overseeing the project. They were usually the stock corporations that were charged to build them. The Scottish were the skilled labor. They were like the architects and so forth. And uh, the Irish and us Italians and Chinese, we were like the uh, the brute uh, labor force. So, uh, well, right, my, right. And, and actually, uh, it's an interesting point because, you know, to go back to the whole pyramids were built by slaves thing, which, you know, it's certainly true. Um, but uh, the, the people who are building the um, St. Lawrence Waterway. Yeah. Okay, we won't call them slaves, but but they practically were. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. The the company store model was basically like virtually slavery. Industrial serfdom. Yeah, industrial serfdom. Not called as much, Um, but you know that's yeah, Yeah. and that was basically if you think about I don't know if you think about even when we talk about it uh, concerning the American South, the idea is that you had slaves who were doing work, which nowadays would be done basically by tools. But historically, this is exactly what slaves were. It was anyone who was going to play the part of a human who's been reduced to the role of a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and this even goes for, for, for elite slaves in positions of governance. They had no okay, control yeah, over their, their lives. Exactly. They had no control yeah, over yeah. the disposition of whatever property they owned. And their children, even the most even the most elite slave, like like the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, was essentially despite the, the fact that he wielded yeah. despite the fact that he wielded power over the free, he was essentially he existed at the will of the Sultan. He existed right. at his yeah. existence was, as I said, contingent on mm. totally contingent on another. And whatever um, administrative responsibilities he had, whatever power he may have had, his rights were still circumscribed. It was yeah. essentially property, yeah, yeah, yeah. even if he was property that held power. Interesting. And we have a co- we have a comment from Spiced who gave us five U.S. dollars. Thank you so much, Spice. Super chat. Will Sonny ever make another appearance on BTR? I hope so. He's doing a lot of school right now. He's living his life. Maybe but, in the uh, summer. Maybe in the summer if he's off okay. school. Okay, Geo. I don't know, like how, like Led's got to tell me if this is safe for the stream or not. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. But like, can someone explain? I think Geo might be able to explain. But 
can someone explain to me this like Anglo thing where people say like English people are related to Jewish people? Because I don't really get what people mean. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think they say. Well, actually, some will say they're related. Um, but I think the general the general accusation is that they behave just as bad or worse. You know, for for anything. Oh, I for agree anything. with that. But I, I thought there was some like blood relation. So, well, the the deep Around argument was there is never. No, it doesn't work. Anglo- Around Around the <laughs> is that where the eternal Anglo meme came from? Or uh... Yeah, basically, it was yeah, like right, the right, whole right. meme of it's, the... It's, 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 you can think of it as, like, word substitution, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, from, like, the, the eternal, the Der Ugin, Der Udwig, uh, what's the word? Der Udwig Juden? Yeah, from... Yeah. The, the Der Yuda Juden, yeah. The, the By the way, if we're talking about pressure here for a second... I but it's funny because that... Hitler had an affinity for the British ruling class, though. Mm. He had like, well, which I know, which <laughs> going, like, was, yeah. going really upset like yeah. the the, the, the Nazi LARPers. But, but, but like, Hitler, talk... it was almost like the model for Hitler was like the British ruling class mm. in a lot of ways. I forget who said it. I think it was in Helios. Henry Ford, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, but no, but the, the affinity... Yeah, go I, ahead, I was Phil. just yeah. gonna say I don't think Schickelgrove was particularly fond of the Habsburgs. Well, yeah, well, that is, yeah, mean, that is true. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But, but the Habsburgs are very good to my well, well, the Austrian Habsburgs, the cadet branch, the House of Habsburg Lorraine was uh, good to my Jewish ancestors in Austria, Hungary for the mm. most part. So. As they were good to my Calabrese uh, so we have ancestors. Fond, <laughs> so, so we have fond memories. We have mm. fond ancestral historical memories. You know? Well, that was around the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Or, uh... that, that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm. Yes. But, yeah, but Same the... with Lud- Ludwig von Mises. Similar... Uh... Because he was also from yeah. there, and and Hugo von Hofmann, Stalin, even Arnold Schoenberg. I've ta- I've talked about mm-hmm. his his devout monarchism until his death in 1951 in the United States. He he remained a monarchist. Um, Beast. And, uh, yeah, mm. he, he 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 was pretty based. It's 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 unfortunate that he gets you know because of the system that he developed the, the, that he gets the, yeah he that gets people called, think yeah. it was yeah when when in fact it was very vocally conservative going to be conservative you know so a lot a lot of artists that even the Nazis considered degenerate art was they were deeply conservative in a lot mm-hmm. of ways like a lot of German expressionists even though they explicitly went against the Nazis they kind of like were a very while like outright, reactionary in their worldview yeah while outright collaborators like Karl Orff and for a time Richard Strauss actually were leftists yeah left wing so yeah <laughs> there, there was an undercurrent of pre-nazi german leftist thought that like when they weren't siding with the communists they sort of like went up with like certain elements of the nazi party but yeah so the anglo-talmudic thing is like some people would say that there is especially in north america there was like an affinity between the two groups and bap talks about this how like a lot of the ethnic sentiment against Irish people, for instance, he he claims certain historians claim that it was like started by Germanic Jews. I don't know the validity of that, but there is certainly for a time period in America, there was like sort of um, a, a camaraderie between like the, the old guard, like wasp establishment and the upper class Ashkenazi uh, Jew, not to make anything. I'm again. I'm not trying to like you know Paul post here, mm. but uh, it's just the, that's what well, people mean by Anglo-Talmudic, and that they're like mm. I don't know, implementing the same forms of like in rootless individualism and whatnot. But so, it's like if there, it, it certainly be... doesn't help. It certainly. I'm, I'm sorry, Jeff. It certainly doesn't help that one of that one of Britain's greatest prime ministers, the one of its most controversial, is Benjamin Disraeli. Yeah, yeah. And if yeah. you look at some of Benjamin Disraeli's novels. Um, he I've never heard of him. What the fuck? 
You're like, fucking bringing oh, oh, oh my god. Benjamin, I've never no, Benjamin. What happened in the British education system? Yeah, I'll trust him. We're going to talk about the British education system. I could go on about that all day if you really want me to fucking yeah. go. But he was, but he yeah, was a BAME. He was a Sephardic Jew, so he was a BAME. Black yeah, but he was a Sephardic. That doesn't count. That... <laughs> no, but he, I mean, I mean, he was described as swarthy and all, but that's well, not here, here he is. Family. Here's a picture of uh, Benjamin. Yeah, I mean, he's here. definitely not an. He's definitely not an ethnic uh, Anglo-Celtic. But, but see, he, he, he was told us about him at all. It wasn't mentioned. He was one of the most significant prime ministers in British history, was he not? I mean, mm. yeah, he basically uh, created the modern Tories, the modern Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. Though he was at first <laughs> a liberal. <laughs> and, uh, what a fail! What a <laughs> and, and and unlike Gladstone, and and unlike Gladstone, he was a massive imperialist. Too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. During the second yeah, wave of British, didn't that work out an advantage against Gladstone? Like politically speaking, he his his takes were a bit more in favor with like you know the general thrust of the British government. I think, right? Has everyone else has has seriously everyone else heard of this guy other than me? <laughs> what the fuck? It was even a cream song. Just really, he was even a novelist where he discusses his philosophy, which is kind of racialist. It's kind of you know almost like Jewish. It was like Kipling and back mm. yeah the British um, yeah. That's why Kipling is canceled nowadays. But there was that spirit of like Anglo imperialism that lasted at least I would say well into the 19th century. Some people say the 20th century. Um, it's but yeah, in the 60s. Yeah, <laughs> up until the 60s, yeah. exactly. But but that but that Britain is gone. That Britain, like like my parents were watching. Uh, what, what's that? thing on the amazon fire stick uh, brit tube they were watching hyacinth and i'm like i go to my old man we were watching this old like 70s comedy show i'm like you know that like small town britain doesn't exist anymore he goes yeah i know it's fucking sucks. wait what small town britain are you saying doesn't exist here if, um, if you watch like old shows like uh, hyacinth or last of the summer wine that like small yo, town you're britain, 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 britain. 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 you have to watch britain. um what did you say? What's this small town Britain? Sorry, like I'm like I'm, like, I'm pretty sure like, there's like parts of it that might exist. Yeah, there's still yeah, if you like go out enough. I mean, yeah, that's true. But like like in terms of like towny London that was mostly made up of like people who were like what do they call it in in, in uh Britain? They call it working class, like yeah. that type of little Englander. That well, stuff is called, like called gammon now. Gam gammon, yeah, no. yeah, gammon now. Which is, which is, which is a person that makes slow, but that. you know. It's kind of like, yeah, there, there's a different... See, it's it's kind of complicated because there was a lot of admixtures uh, in the British underclass between like Britain and like the, the more like older immigrant classes that were imported into Britain. So there's sort of like a... But let, let's call it like Little Englander type of mm. world. That's sh That shit's like slowly disappearing now, unfortunately. Oh, of course but... it is, but then it's like the same can be said of anywhere and it is just depressing. No, like, no small time, small town Well, now it's, now it's townies filled with spice zombies, put it that yeah. As my friend and like, friend Matthew the Stout says. Goes, I yeah, didn't it's, know. It's townies with spice zombies leaning up against a hedgerow while they're fucking blown mm. out of their mind. That's I, 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 
Over here in this uh, book that I was uh, reading, Modern Times, I don't know if you guys read it, I was taking some notes, and this was in the 1920s, the reversal of the British ruling class. So the old way was Balliol College, Oxford, under the mastership of Benjamin Jowett, and it had a judicial ch tone. Britain's role in the world was to dispense civilized justice enforced if necessary in the firmest possible manner, and it was epitomized in the person of Lord Curzon, fastidious, witty, urbane, immensely cultured, but adamant in the upholding of British interest, which he equated with morality as such. So, and he said over here, here here's a quote from Lord Curzon in 1923. The British government is never untrue to its word and is never disloyal to That's its colleagues or its allies. Never does anything underhanded or mean. That is the real basis of moral authority, which the British Empire has long exerted. Well, the question here is like the idea of emphasizing this so that even if it's bullshit to a certain extent, compared to what? And then the new way over here, this is a new way, Cambridge, developed private groups and worked by influence and suggestion. 1820, the literary society, the Apostles, uh, propagated early heterodoxes of Wordsworth and Coleridge secretly chose recruits who were mostly in high caliber teachers or critics rather than creators worldview diff diffident I don't even know what this word modest or shy due to lack of self-confidence retiring shy and fond of being on one's own unaggressive agnostic highly critical of pretentious uh, pretensions and grand schemes humanitarian above all concerned with personal rather than public duties so i wonder if like this created the change that we later on saw in england and uh whether this power structure that was dismantled from this old way may have led to some unfortunate uh uh conclusions I don't know. Everybody subscribe right now. That's what subscribe. you got to do in these gaps. Subscribe yeah. to break the rules. We keep it going for you. And uh, the, yeah, this subscribe was... to me. Yes. Subscribe to Philip Daniels uh, Instagram. Can you post your well, Instagram? Subscribe to my YouTube channel too. Right. Where, where yeah, I upload my, my musical compositions. Oh, yes. It's where, it's where I upload my, my musical compositions. Shit. I didn't even know. Okay. What, what is your like... YouTube channel? I'll post it again. I thought I posted it last time. I'll post no. it again in the private Are... chat. Oh, and the see that's the thing. I don't see the private chat. I should okay, take a look. Oh, I'll, I'll post it in the regular. No, no, chat. no. I I do see. No, I do see the private chat, but I ignore it, which I should. Here shouldn't. we go. Well, it's in, it's in the normal chat. I think the spirit the spirit of the Englishman, right? And I think Lev probably has one of these images saved because he's a big North FC poster from what I know. <laughs> is the one where it's like this is why I think when anyone talks about Britain like in a negative light, it's like fine. I don't like it, but then it's the British the British spirit. And even though people think it's dying, even though people think the British spirit is dying in a government ship, it's still there. And it's that, what is it? You have the image of the people in the swamp and it's got the like face paints and it's the, the yes. Romans talking about it. And it's the fucking, the British spirit is still fucking living on. It's in people like me. It's in people like some of the, the people I meet every day. And even if they're not perfect with their philosophies, I don't agree with them. That spirit is still fucking super duper strong when I see it around. There's so many of these like anti-establishment YouTubers People, people seem to think a lot of this coronavirus stuff is bullshit. Oh, I can't really say ah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't say anything like that. You know, a lot of this stuff, it exists, but then the government's, you know, not handling it correctly. And the angry spirit is definitely fucking living on, I can tell you that. And it's living on through Americans as well. It's basically anyone that speaks English has this fucking spirit in you. And it's like, I'm very happy that it's like, even the, with stuff like this, with stuff everywhere, people are mm. fucking living on. And I don't have that much intelligent stuff is out this but i'm still learning 
but it's like I'm fucking fighting man I want everyone to fucking you know like spiritually and mentally fight and occasionally physically if someone's happy first or in a duel well, we go. have a comment from a uh, Shizo Rick aka Quantrill Bishop myself should recite if by Ru Rudyard Kimpling right now <laughs> <laughs> oh no no no! Okay, so I, <laughs> although although I did, I, I, I got I gotta look that up later. If it's too spicy, don't because I don't want the stream to be over. But uh, no, it's the original motivational speech, basically. Okay, well, what we're gonna have to talk <laughs> about this. But it's best poetic. But uh, but all, but also. Oh, it's this uh, one. Oh, this one's great. Okay. I love this. But one. also, I really like that movie. If with Alex, uh, uh sorry, with uh, Alex from Clockwork Orange, you know, with Malcolm McDowell. You know the one I'm talking about, If? The sequel to that was Oh Lucky Man, which is an amazing movie as well. I highly recommend you guys see Oh Lucky Man. And the sequel to that was Britannia Hospital, which I've never seen, so I don't have any, any thoughts on it. But myself, I'm sorry to hornpost once again, but when you were talking about when you were talking about the swamp, I just imagined a naked Polly Walker with her hair, you know, barely covering her breasts in, in the swamp and me going into the swamp and embracing her. So anyway, I'm not gonna horn post anymore. I'm sorry, I just created that visual right now. I don't know. She's pretty. Is she pretty popular in England? Polly Walker, like. Uh, uh, like I mean, I, like I, I don't know because I'm like very disconnected from what's popular. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't even. I've not heard the term. Polly I, Walker, I think she's like but... a big the theatrical uh, actress as well. I'm I not exactly sure. <laughs> but by the way, guys, we are going to have Evie says if is very good. I agree. We are going to have Free For All Friday coming up this week. I don't even know what it's going to be called yet because these events are moving so fast right now. I don't know what's going to be happening tomorrow. But here is who's going to be attending it. I mm -hmm. have browsed the internet in search of some newcomers, some people who have never been on BTR before. And here are some of them. I don't know if you guys know them or not, but here they are. Uh, number one, looking for that wow factor, a.k.a. Plopadop. Uh, then who do we have over here? We have... Uh, Atzerpentim. I can't even pronounce this. God damn it. But it's this uh, like anime avatar over here. Uh, Timeworld.neocities.org is the website. Robert Mariani. He still has to fully confirm, but I think Robert oh. Mariani is uh, is going to be coming in. Then who do we have? We have Rare Exquisite Apu, a.k.a. Alabaster, a.k.a. Who is John Galt? Then who do we have over here? All right, now I got to consult the uh, the big spreadsheet in order to find the rest of the names. And I want all the regular new old comers to come in as well. You guys are all invited. We are going to be having a lot of interesting conversations there. We are going to have Chicano Marine coming back with us. He, you know, very an very anti-Trump. You know, like a I think he's part of hashtag resist. I don't know, but he's a great dude. I always love having him on. And uh, let's see who else we are going to have for uh, this Friday. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe and go to patreon.com slash break the rules. Okay. We are also going to have Zach Waldman. He is coming back. The odd guy, a.k.a. Easy PZ, is back. And uh, that's about it right now. I still got to see who else is coming on. Yeah, I got I got I to gotta look at Thomas777. I know he's been highly requested. So I want to take a look at that guy and see what <laughs> That'd we can That'd be amazing. By the you way, know, I think we could talk to T seven 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 about is uh, intercity buses in America, the Greyhound experience. I would love to have a conversation with him about that. Um, Amazing. You know, he, we will for, for for like a recent dude on Twitter. He sure uh, well, and for a guy who like clearly has his own wheelhouse that he's working in, he sure posts a lot of train and bus related content, and I am very here for it. You know. 
Bur oh, by birds the way, we can birds of a feather. Yes, we can definitely. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you guys are up for it, I think a few people in the chat are suggesting it. Uh, the if poem is definitely like safe for work. Like I'm just quickly looking for it again now, and it's like there's nothing you know like there's gonna okay. Yeah, it's, it's, myself. It's like, well, you, you have the floor, but first, spicy. Okay. But first, yeah. I just want to um to let everybody know that I want to get BAP on. Uh, guys, please go to BAP and just tell him to come on BTR. I said <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know if he checks the messages that much, so I'm not really sure I, how exactly. I, I feel like it'd be difficult for him to come on. Certainly not if, uh, certainly not with a camera. <laughs> well, know? I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, you gotta stay oh, we have Anons come on. It's alright. Oh yeah, of course. Most most of our free for all Friday is just avatars everywhere, so that is not a problem mm -hmm. at all. Today was the exception. I don't think today we had anybody with an avatar at all. So this is like uh, breaking Inception. new grounds for, yeah, for break the rules over here. But anyway, poem, myself, if, go. Yeah, I've not actually like read it out loud before, but okay. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tied by waiting or be lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think, not make thoughts your end. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it in one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowns and keep your virtue or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And that's it. That's it. Whoa. That's nice. I like that one. I Wait, where is it? that Ooh. lyric from, you'll be a man, my son? Is that also used in Mulan? Yeah, or where... No, it's used in uh, Simple Man by Lenny yeah. Skinner, if I recall. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Mulan is I'll Make a Man Out of You. So, yeah, that, that was a good musical. I didn't see the new movie, but I heard it was kind of, uh, you know, what, what are you going to do? That's the new media today. I think uh, I think we are going to have a resurgence of an artistic movement through this whole uh, sphere that we are all in communication with. And, guys, I think uh, this, is pretty this is pretty much it for today. I want to thank everybody here uh, for the amazing conversations. I want to thank Jessica Deloach so much for coming in here and for uh, talking with us because these kind of connections need to happen. And I want to ask everybody here, all the people who are in the chat right now, find some neoconservatives and find people who are more like classically liberal. The kind of people who I'm huh. particularly looking for. Well, huh, but you know, this needs to happen. We we'll got it. We got to connect. On. We got well, No, 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 we're not having to, I, We have Sargon and I'm just going to I'm going to argue with Sargon because I don't I don't like that. Guys. No, 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 no. I mean just like regular like just like classically liberal people like on uh for example, the Weekly Dish. Uh, you know what I mean? Who am I thinking of right now? Why is his name? Hold on. 
What is going on with my head right now? You guys know who I'm talking about. Let's see. The weekly dish, what is wrong with my brain? See, this is what happens when you do these streams for a long time. Uh, one, two, you three, four, five, six, seven. Long. Just get on Dr. Peterson. <laughs> oh, that'd be something. Oh, yeah, that would be amazing. Oh, uh, I'm afraid his is too high. Here, Andrew Sullivan. I would love to have Andrew Sullivan on, but also, please find no, us people. Yeah, well, find He's a us mixed people bag, like but him. I feel he would be like a good guest. He's... Uh, Shizzo asks, "Do I know Kyle Rowland?" No, I don't know who Kyle. Oh Rowland no! Is. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> What's going on? Who's that? What's going on? He uh he used to de facto co-host with Luke Ford on his oh! live streams. I don't know what you guys are talking about. He is and he is basically a libertarian artist. That's basically oh, wow. what he is. We don't need any more annoying lib well, I don't need too harsh. <laughs> I, 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 I have need some any respect for him because he sticks by his I won't say the you know, I won't call the idiom, but he's you know, class. sticks by his uh beliefs, if you will. <laughs> and uh right. so I, I do have some respect for him, but I, you know, I'd like to keep the Luke. I'd like to keep most of the Luke Ford sphere out of BTR, with perhaps with the exception of Babylonian Hebrew and uh, Monsieur, and maybe a couple others. Oh, is Bab still around? Uh, yes, and um, well, I met him in I met him in person in June 2019 um, here in Philly, and I have you know I have his number, and I text him every so often. So hmm. yeah. Hmm. Oh, and by the way, I, I want to. I guess you could say so, but I, I, I want to use, and also I think Scott Adam, aka Scotch Fields, may be coming in as well. And what I would like to do is, oh, and also, uh, yeah, the odd guy, Easy Peasy, is back. I think he may also be able to make it. Arthur Bloom may be able to make it as well. I don't know if you guys know Arthur Bloom. Mm -hmm. So he is a uh, he is a writer for. Um, the uh, Amcon Mag. That's uh, what was it? The American Conservative. So yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if he could come in. I had a nice picture of him here with the mustache. Uh, and let's see what else. I also send a message to Ming Solania Nethery, uh, aka Ming Gao Twenty Six. So if you guys know uh, who that is, please see if you guys can kind of like get them to uh, come on the stream. And who else? I sent Sad Prank. Uh, who else? Locust Bones, uh, Milkman, aka MK Ultra forty seven forty seven. Let's see what else. I'm going. Okay, I'm going to get Chairman of Swag Xi Jinping on. Not this Friday, Whoa. but a little bit. But a little bit later, he's going to be able to come on eventually, pretty soon. So I'm very excited about that. Also, T Manu six, Magog Moore Scar, Vara Dark. Lo-fi Republican. Oh, what... oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So Lef, he, wait, he, this is, yes. This is important. All of these guys are like Twitter users, right? Like m yes. pretty much most of them. Pretty much. Because yes. this is like we're gonna. This is gonna, you're gonna come back to this in like three years. I'll say. Let's say three years, and you won't be talking to people on Twitter. They'll be like, I don't think Twitter's got much fucking uh, longevity left for like people that come on this stream. Like the people that come on this stream aren't gonna want to use Twitter too much longer if it keeps progressing in the way that it's been going. I mean, that's part of what the stream's been about, right? It's like kind of... Sure. Yeah, but, we'll, but we'll see what happens right now. I want to reach out to people and bring them into BTR, and right now Twitter is still the place for that yeah. to happen. Yeah, also, sure. we got who I contacted. He hasn't gotten back to me yet. So, guys, again, if you know him, just uh, get in touch, see if uh, we could do something. One Wally. I don't know if you guys know One Wally. 
and also real BG Kumbi. And oh. Viper, yes, and uh, Viper Wave. I contacted Viper Wave about this as well. I contacted Earth Eater about this as well. No response yet. Yo. So anyway, these these are the people that we have coming up. We are also, by the way, I could I could already announce this. Why not? We are most likely because he's already confirmed. Gonna have uh, Chris Wilson uh, come in of Cyanide and Happiness, and that is going to be no later on, later oh. on in the coming week. So that should be a very exciting episode. Let's see who else we got here. I'm just looking. looking Wait, did you say BJ Cumby? Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm gonna pop out now. By the way, but thank you so much for having me on again. Thank um, you, Alex, thank so you much. my friend. I really appreciate it. BG Cumby coming on would just be a massive fucking shit post. Like, be a troll. I think he's a big. I think he's a bigger shit poster than I am, and that's saying oh, something. Man. Like, Interesting. And we're also gonna have we're also gonna have another woman's stream uh, coming up. Okay, it's not gonna be Thursday, January. Another woman's stream. Not even a woman's Yeah, woman. It's different. One it's for the girls. woman. It's different. It's like, I, I, I like that joke with, uh, you know, uh, instead of girls gone wild, if it's women gone wild, you know, it implies something else. But anyway, over here, we are moving that to Tuesday, January 19th. Why? Because the 20th, some shit may go down, and that's going to be the only news. So I'm not going to have a woman's stream go on. What's going to happen the on the time. 20th? Hold on, sorry, I'm missing something. Well, on the 20th, at least people are talking about there's supposed to be some kind of, uh, you know, mass protest going on everywhere because of the election stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, oh, this okay. is inauguration. Yeah, yeah, it is the inauguration, basically. So let's see what else over here we have. So we're moving that one to the 19th. Then we are going to have another free for all Friday on the 22nd right after which will know, probably be about the inauguration yeah yes, yes. happens <laughs> exactly exact mundo and then let's see okay for tuesday january 26 he has not confirmed in fact he has not gotten back yet but this i want this to be like the online kind of like convincing him to do it which is L lush sucks i want to bring lush lush sucks on the stream i have no idea if he's ever done a stream i don't know anything about the guy graffiti he's the graffiti guy yes. right Yes, there's some pretty anti-graffiti sentiment in the chat before which I think yes exactly well, that's, what we gotta, yeah. that's what we got to bring them let on let me check and out the slush sucks right here and then thursday january 28 we're gonna have owen cyclops come in and then tuesday february 2 we're gonna have noah hugbox come in who is a great youtuber and uh then we're gonna have chris wilson thursday february 4 and then the rest over here we got to fill out except for thursday march 4th which it's tentative whether it's march 4th or a different march but we are going to have gino samuel aka the guy who's doing the chris chan doc coming in and that's going to be a lot of fun i wonder if we could bring christine chan on at the same time that would be the universe would explode although we should probably have her separate for like a separate dimensional merge stream and that would be a dream come true guys so please if you guys know christine chan please bring her on i would love nothing more than to talk to her about sonic and rosa chu and the dimensional merge and recycling ebay ebay <laughs> ebay ebay no that'd be fucking cool you just said ebay if you know the context, if you know about uh, Blue Spike, you'll know what I'm talking about. Oh God, Blue oh, Spike! God. Don't remind me. There's too me much. Of that fun. The problem is, like you're saying, oh, you know what we're talking about. But I've seen up to like episode thirty something. They like, fucking all blurs together for me. So, uh, Blue Spike is like the only person that I can see is like actually malicious. The rest of it is just like this weird world <laughs> west internet below. No, a lot of them were malicious. After well, no, but it's in. I don't Spike, feel like a lot of them are that like. Wait properly i don't know i feel like a lot of it's just like oh it's yeah, my playstation bro. account's gone it's oh, like Byzantium, it really Byzantium, 
Byzantium Archon is going to send the super chat. That is great. Thank you so much, Byzantium Archon. I'm going to be looking at this right mm -hmm. now. I mean, we were planning on end this, ending this, but fuck, if he's going to send a super chat, I'm not ending this shit right now. No, so, uh, Wong Carwai, super fan XOXOXO says, why not get Christine Chan and Chris Chan on at the same time? <laughs> well, you well know, in we the dimensional merge, there's a dimension with Chris Chan, like as like 2007 to 2013 Chris Chan. Mm -hmm. so that's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could possibly get the uh, the uh, liquid Chris to come on. I mean, that would be great, like to have a reunion stream with Blue Spike, Liquid Chris. No, the no, we can have reunion, but the, the, the thing with Blue we'll Spike telling him to cash jump shield his ass. Like, <laughs> I, I think Blue Spike could just be banned. I don't know, like from doing anything like that. I don't know. Blue Spike. Oh, oh okay. Ding Dong asks, no, Robert Sefer has not responded. What the fuck? Try to get, please try to get Robert Sefer on the stream. I would love to have him on the stream. I would love to have Michael Malice on the stream. Fuck what I want Michael Malice on the stream. I even met him at Skankfest, and I've exchanged messages with the guy before, but he would definitely be an amazing fucking guest that I would love to have. And uh, uh, let's see over here. Uh, Byzantium Archon, love does not understand the context I am talking about. Amy panning, panning camera down on stream. What is he talking about? You read that. I'm, very... I'm, I'm not even sure if you were meant to read that aloud, but it sounds like a prank thing that you've been pranked by, like just panning down on stream. No, no, here we go. I got some money. $2. Any thoughts? And this is from Pontifex Maximus, Tyler Durden. Any thoughts about getting on Althusserhevcom? Who is that? I don't know who that oh, is. Oh, uh, the YouTuber Ju Julie. Ju Ju Julie. No, no, no. Um, he's pretty good. He's kind of like uh, I don't know. He's he's a good he's a good YouTuber. I highly recommend his videos. Uh, Ju Ju. I forget how to spell his name. Fuck it. Wait, wait, wait. By the way, Peter Faust. <laughs> is, wait, 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 wait. Is Peter Faust a monster who? Or am I just imagining that? Because, Peter, you write really similarly to the way Amon writes. Yeah, he so, does. Um, yeah, right? Like, yeah, he does. Definitely. Oh, look what's going on. My cat is trying to get the chicken bones that I put on the... <laughs> no, I may know the answer to that, but I won't reveal it unless... All right. Is it actually in Either, it unless... unless... Are they in the gay it. relationship or something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just fucking throwing shit out there. Oh god. Amon is dead. Oh, is it just Amon or another account? Don't forget to subscribe for this cat. Here, let me let me do a close up shot of the cat. I know you guys can't really see it that well, but the people in the uh here. By the way, by the way, uh I just went to uh Julie's Twitter and he retweeted this clip of Iran in the 80s during the uh, German national anthem in FIFA, and they're all giving the fucking <laughs> Roman salute. <laughs> mm. I love that. That's crazy, man. Oh. Yeah. I sent... oh, you Apparently they want to go to war with Iran now. They're, they're talking about how Iran is both communist and Nazi, and uh, this one General Pompe Pompeo, what's his name? Yeah, Mike Pompeo. Yeah, apparently Iran is both communist and Nazi. So Iran is Nazbal, according to the American security uh, Pentagon apparatus. Well, I, I, li I listened to that speech. So from what I understand, he's saying that uh, Al-Qaeda 
has uh, it's now back. Al Qaeda's back and it's back in Iran. But I would say one thing, though, because for people who would think that, wait a minute, isn't uh, Al Qaeda Sunni and uh, yeah. isn't Iran Shia? The response to that I would give just to play devil's advocate over here is that uh, when it comes to uh, Turkey, Turkey is aligned together with Azerbaijan, even though most Azerbaijanis are Shiites and Turkey is Sunni. So it does not necessarily mean that these type of things don't end up working out as far as these weird relationships. So again, like, I don't want to be someone who would just... Yeah, I mean... I don't want to be someone who just uh, would say like, oh, they're bleeding us to another thing without looking at more details. But let's let's see what happens. I'm going to be I'm going to be paying attention to what exactly is going on here. So anyway, this is Steve. This is my cat, Steve. I love my cat. He's great. He's a little bit tired now, though. So I'm going to put him down. But he was after he was after the chicken bones. And I'm not going to give him the chicken bones because that's that is no good. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to show you one last thing since I have this camera right now. Uh, Gio, do you want to do some shout outs while I show the don't last look at the oh, chicken? Don't look at the chicken, everyone. Yes. Don't look at the chicken. Oh, you've just been one of the classic blunders and the classic blunders. Oh, God. Shout outs. Um, yeah. Let's see. Shout out. We got in the chat. Gomer. Uh, Buff, Byzantium Archon, Pylos, uh, Pylos, Peter Pylos. Faust. Uh, I can't understand that Russian acrylic. Patrick Bateman, but backwards. That's Wait, the, the Russian Cyrillic would be uh, uh, Bulat Usmanov. Bulat Usmanov, yeah. Nam Kritap. It's Patrick yeah. Bateman backwards. I think that was the one you were reading, right? Peter the... Faust is Amy, yeah. our girl. Yes, Amy Therese is our girl. Love to have her on the show. Um, King Kush, uh, Ding Dong. I'm just scrolling. We got up a, there. we got a Ding Dong. Got King Kush. Oh, what are you smoking? Wong Kar Wai super fan. XO 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 Um, let's see. Owen Geo and Paul talk for a proper discussion. Yeah, that'd be pretty crazy. Uh, Schizo Rick to my boy, aka Quatrell Bishop. Uh, who else we got here? Um, I'm trying to find other names. I'm trying to find them. Uh, you guys aren't even seeing this crystal. Alex going off. Del, That's Alex Delarge, David Hevel, Hevel. Well, David Alex Hevel. Delarge, Alex Delarge is the name of the uh, Clockwork Orange main character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pontifex Maximus Tyler Durden. Uh, who else do we got? Uh, I think that's it. Chris yeah. Alton. Chris Alton. Uh, On a man's back, yeah. Yeah, Bruce yeah, Bogtrotter. Yeah. And Bruce, Bruce Bogtrotter. There you go. That's the mm. that's the chat yeah. shout-outs. You know, yeah. they have the uh, Harlem Globetrotters, but we've got the Bruce Bogtrotters. So, <laughs> anyway, guys, this is it. This is the end of the stream. Okay. I love you all. You guys are love amazing. Uh, don't end the... Don't end the Zoom no, no, call, no, no, end no, the stream. Not by yet, the way, yeah. I don't know. And, and also, again, once again, everybody subscribe right now. Patreon.com slash break the rules. I cannot emphasize this enough. We have to grow and we will grow thanks to all of your help and uh, hard uh, hard work. And uh, here, I'm going to send this right now. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Everybody go there right now. Become a patron. You know what you get. $30, uh, $20 patron. Well, all patrons are going to have access to the uh, private Discord percolator area. And $30, uh, sorry, $20 are going to get the uh, beautiful 
beautiful wooden magnets. Here they are. Here are the magnets. They are quite amazing. And $30 are also, in addition to the magnets, going to get Giovanni Panacchietti's beautiful, exquisite prints. Here, let me play it for a second. Here we go. Here are the prints. Look at these prints. They are really amazing. Hold on, why isn't it playing? Oh, because of the zoom window here. I'm going to bring it up so that you could see it. Okay, here we go. Patreon print. Play, goddammit. Why isn't it playing? Oh, it's still on the thing. Okay, hold on. Here we go. We'll do it Patreon live. Patreon print. Play. We'll do it live. Fuck we'll it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Okay, I don't know why fucking the Patreon prints are. Fucking thing does suck. It's supposed to play. What the fuck, OBS? Anyway, guys, you know, they are amazing prints that Geo does. And $50 patronage is going to give you guys all of that stuff. But in addition, a custom magnet, whatever you want. My amazing father alexander is going to design it for you and on top of that you're going to get an original beautiful uh painting from geo a beautiful uh painted figure from jules jules is going to either uh get a figure from that game with that with the marines what they call it. 4D, <laughs> hammer. 4D, 4D hammer 4D hammer yes 40 hammer 40 backgammon uh yeah. hammer and uh and also yeah i think that's pretty much it so guys become patrons i love you all i'm gonna end this shit right now and you guys are the ma amazing free for all fridays coming up don't forget and that is it. I'm just I'm just looking for the button right now. That's pretty much what I'm doing. All right, here I found the button. Take care.